Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. Greetings and welcome back to another exciting installment of the Fifth Column Podcast. This is your almost weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle, the people that make it, and occasionally ourselves. I'm Camille Foster, and I'm I'm embracing this whole thing with respect to pronouns. Him, is he? I guess that's how it works, right? But I think I'm also going to go with that nigga, as in no, yo, man, Camille, that nigga. Say, no, come on, it's a you know, not, that nigga. Forty seconds no. in the show. Seriously, I think that's fair. Jeez. I told you the other day before you introduce anybody that we saw everyone, the person. Everyone, I feels, saw the person from uh, Sirius, and yeah. then she was like, "Oh, love your podcast too. Yeah. I had to get rid of you guys because uh-huh, you uh-huh. swore so much." That that's not swearing. It's worse. What? It's it, not swearing. It, it, How's it worse? <laughs> Uh, anyway, introduce the show, you in, racist. In, in the room, in the room with me, of course, very good friends, editor at large, Reason Magazine, Matt Welch, Michael Moynihan um, of Vice News, um, and our very good friend Anthony Fisher, also in the room. Hello, Anthony Fisher of Insider. Hello, uh, it's wonderful to be with all of you, gentlemen. It's great to see you. Yes. I just want to point out that your list of pronouns mm-hmm. were he, him, and his. Yeah. I think that that's the, not how it works. I think the idea is I'm not that very good at there's this. More is really just a setup for me to be able to say nigga in the podcast. Oh, I just wanted to make you guys uncomfortable. I love the way you cringe. I just, I I just it. you know, it's unnecessary. Yeah, it is. You, you just throw it in there it just is. to make me uncomfortable. It's trolling. I mean, I'm enjoying not, this. Yeah, all right. no one else is. This yeah. works for me. Do you remember in the first like 50 episodes? I was like, you don't know Camille is black. And you're like, no, I'm not. Like, yes, you are. Yeah. Stop. That was a good 10 minutes. Ago. I didn't know the first year. I don't know what you're talking about. I wanted to make sure that people didn't think that you know it was like to Richard. Spencer family to hour. To be clear or here, when, when Moynihan uh, in our last episode, I believe, asked for a bunch of uh, listener feedback, and we've gotten incredible oh, yeah. mm-hmm. listener much. feedback. <laughs> How many of them said we need uh, Camille to drop more n bombs? Uh, nobody actually. No, no, one, no one says uh, that, but they all want it. Yeah. But anyone, <laughs> there was anyone one say don't say it. Well, no, there was one person who pointedly said, "Enough race talk. We get how you all yeah, feel." Oh, race. Thanks a lot, Fisher. Yeah, yeah I'm not yeah. going to tell you about the one yeah. person who said, "Get Fisher out of there." Yeah. I saw that one. Oh no! Oh, you saw <laughs> that? Do you have a password <laughs> to my Instagram? Because <laughs> <laughs> that was in my DMs. <laughs> a lot of things. A lot of things in your DMs. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. You know what isn't in your DMs? What's That's a terrible transition. We do have. I mean, you could save it. Let's see if we can save it. Yeah, I will. We'll use that again later. I don't know. But I I just want to introduce Walt Hickey. Hello. He's our guest. He's the data guy at Insider, formerly at 538. And I imagine it's also doing data stuff at 538 because you're the data guy. How are you? I'm great. Thanks again for having me on. It's It's a pleasure to have you here. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We didn't scare you I just want to say, you sound like a data guy. (laughs) That's super. (laughs) You have the voice of a data guy. (laughs) That's not. That is the second most cruel thing that somebody said to me today. After what? In the last 10 minutes. No. Yeah, prior, prior, just let me say now that reference prior to starting, uh, Camille came in and said, uh, "You look like someone who saw the Joker this weekend." That's <laughs> something to that effect. I was too. I was at Comic Con. I was too busy, and I'm very sorry. By the way, were you were you really at Comic Con? I was there. Yes. <laughs> as, a pre, as a member of the pre, yes, yeah, you I were. Was there, sure. Yeah, you, you were. Know, I'm a member of the press. So, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, <laughs> so what, what? It's a pleasure of, to be here. What yeah. sort of data stuff? were you doing at Comic-Con? Uh, so we're actually working Counting on the women. Couple- <laughs> there were four. They were there and they were in, they were doing the cosplay thing, yeah. which is, which is pretty hot. Right? Exactly. Walt knows. Yeah. You got some data on that, Walt. <laughs> 
What's the download? Well, what's the <laughs> deal? Uh, yeah, no. So we were working potentially with some comic artists on some future yeah, cool yeah. stuff at Insider. So I was there to do a little recruitment. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So you weren't doing any sort of counting. I was not counting anything now. Oh, yeah. okay. So talk to us about data journalism. Yeah, for real. So I actually worked closely with this guy, Anthony. And uh-huh. uh, basically what we're doing a lot of going into the election is we realize that we have resources and we have ways that we can tap into polling that are it's just there. Like you can, for a fairly affordable rate at this point, conduct good bona fide national online surveys. And so uh, he and I have been doing a lot of that over the course of the primary, figuring out, like kind of asking questions in a way that you don't see typical pollsters doing because we're not trying to get, you know, the top line information that 20 other folks are running for. Right. So mm-hmm. we're trying to get a little bit more inside the primary, a little bit more what happens. Well, OK, Kirsten Gillibrand drops out. Who does her support go to and things like that? So, right. we're doing so a lot in, of that. The, in the in the past, um, I guess it's maybe not the, the case anymore, but like online polling was always sort of discounted. Right. Yeah. Well, like, well, it was an online poll yeah. and, you know, the sample size was small or whatever. But it's usually like it, it was an online poll meant that it was not particularly trustworthy. Yeah. Is that no longer the case? So that's super changed. And basically what happened was for a while, it was landlines were the only way to go. Uh, yeah. Because the idea is that if you want to make sure that you call enough people and get a good sample size and, and know that it's bona fide. Sorry, sorry. 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 Oh, sorry. sorry. I, I, I was trying to turn my phone off so you could talk and then I just but made it. So the worst of, possible yeah, 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 yeah. So online polls are bullshit. Continue. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so for a while, they're pretty heavily discounted just because landline was sort of ready to go. But now if you want to get a good sample of Americans, you can't call a landline. Nobody under 29 has a landline. Mm-hmm. You disproportionately get older, whiter members of the population away. Is there what not some against white people? Yeah. God. <laughs> Sorry. Do you remember, sorry. That? You remember the email this? from the person who said, we know what you believe about race? <laughs> do you, do I'm going really? to have someone like crochet that and put, it on, <laughs> put that on this other uh, floor. I don't but like your what, presumptions. I, but why is it? And I've heard this for like over a decade now yeah. that, you know, it doesn't account for people with cell phones only. Why can't it at yeah. this point? I mean, I know there's, no, there's no directory in the same way that there was. Well, that's exactly it. So you don't know who you're calling. The idea is like everybody gets spam phone calls on their phone, right? So a voice over IP, I can call you from a Williamsburg, Virginia number when I'm in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. And so you don't get the actual random digit dialing that you used to be able to get. You you call businesses now. You don't have a way to know that it is a human. And as a result, you can't like you can do cell phones. It's just much more expensive. Mm-hmm. You got to keep in mind that the polling that you do when you phone when you phone people, you're not paying per respondent. You're basically paying per call center time until you get sufficient sample size. Mm-hmm. That's getting weedsy, but with digital polling now, they've done a lot of work over the past 10 years to try to basically skate to where the puck's going to be because they know that landline polls are not going to be effective anymore after a certain point. They know that it's going to get prohibitively expensive to do. So you see these serious pollsters who have been, you know, calling people on landline since the 40s. Now they're starting to fold in a little bit more digital because they kind of realize that if they don't adapt, realistically, they're just not going to be calling Americans anymore. Yeah. I, you know, I've, has anyone here ever gotten a uh, a, uh, a pollster calling them? Sure. I never have. Yeah, I, really? Yeah. What the fuck do they have against me? Really? Nobody? <laughs> you, you have, have you? I'm trying to remember, but I don't think so. Like, and you're like in your 60s. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> really weird. <laughs> Nothing. And you, have, you still have a landline. I, I'm thinking like <laughs> in how, your bag. how many of us have uh, actual New York number on our cell phone? Yeah. yeah. No. I don't. I mean, I don't. Fish, DC. of course. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like I have a Massachusetts one. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. my only tie. I've been thinking about get, getting a 212 number. You can't get a 212 number. You can. You got to pay for it. I remember it. when yeah. Ariana Huffington. It's like buying a domain or something? Yeah. Like, yeah. Really? I took mine with me. Wow. They auctioned those off. No kidding. Yeah, I bet you want to do wow. another. In between going from like uh, the cult of John Roger and 
just go look that up. It's pretty great. Mm. Uh, and like transitioning from the uh, the worst conservative in the world on Time Magazine cover in 1994, as she was uh, uh, portrayed into what she is now, somewhere in between there around 2001. Maybe she did the Shadow Conventions too in 2000, which was uh, a. Jamie Ariana? I'm Ariana. Okay, yeah. sorry. Um, uh, she had a like a, a three month enthusiasm and a book to go with it about how the biggest problem in America is that there's too many polls. And so mm. if you if we just stop answering the phone when the pollsters call, then and only then will politicians make the right decisions for wow. Americans. And unfortunately for her and for the rest <laughs> of us, yeah. this coincided with 9-11. Yeah. yeah. And so her first column after 9-11, go look it up. It's like September 13th, <laughs> 2001, <laughs> Los time. Angeles wow. Times. It's yeah. like if we just stop answering the phone, when poll, then we would have yeah. we would have the answers to Al Qaeda. It was yeah. it was. Oh, uh, did she go back and shoehorn Al Qaeda into it? Oh yeah, I mean, like everybody, <laughs> everybody finds their way to like the thing I've been talking about right, for the right. last nine months or nine years is the reason why yeah, the bad it's a thing pity happened. She, she wasn't but hers was the worst. It, we hadn't reached the age where Twitter was the very worst monster in all of America. Tucker Carlson said, "Well, she uh, her." Last book was about how we all need to sleep more. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's just true. I I wrote a piece that referenced this. I read some of it Uh, and it was just like, I'm just, (laughs) and it was like that ASMR because I was reading it in her like Greek accent, but like in a a lower, sexier way. And it was this thing. It was all about um, acupuncture, which Mm is bunk and uh, it's total woo woo. Mm -hmm. And then about sleeping. And that was it. I'm like, wait, what you last, when I first heard of you, you were turning. Republican meant gay, <laughs> and they were the, the most expensive races in the history. Yeah. I, I, right, it was Michael Hoffman's oh race. Yeah. It, it, Isn't she a partner in like a mattress company now as well? Is she? There I was a bus- so. there was a business component to that yeah. whole sleep thing. I don't uh-huh. want to say it wrong, Are but there absolutely there absolutely was. A yeah, thing. they had an office in yeah. like not an office, a storefront in um, Soho. And those mattresses, I remember going into the store and she had a big poster on the wall. They were incredibly fucking expensive. Just like stupid So it wasn't like... It might have been like the the ones that had horse hair and all kinds of other natural things in them. Maybe not the horse hair, but maybe so. Either way, it was ridiculous. Because um, it's not like Casper. No, it wasn't Casper. Yeah, no, I think that. people discount us as a podcast because we don't have Casper advertising. Because everybody <laughs> has a Casper. <laughs> it's like um, yeah, the stamps. I, I have one. I you have, have a Casper. Casper. I have a Casper. I, I have, I'm going to give a shout out to Tuft and Needle, which is a similar, <laughs> yes, similar one. It, is. it also sounds like a shitty Brooklyn restaurant. It's yeah. always something like you know charcoal and like you know berries or something. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, Tuft and Needle is one that I was pretty comfortable. Yeah, yeah. I've wanted to start something called Stone and Roberts for a long time. Stone I just don't and, have like an what idea. Is st- I don't know, I just like it. Sounds like an accounting for actually Stone a and Roberts. Song, there was a, a Camplo song called Stone and Roberts. Mm. But you're getting ready to ask me, what is Camplo? Which of course is I know sad. what Camplo is. I never know with you, man. Yeah. Earlier today, you didn't know what 112 was. Yeah, but I was at a party with you the other day, and I was talking to some guy. You were dropping knowledge. I, and I was dropping like deep, like yeah. deep, like Black Moon, this old school, East Coast hip hop. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but I, there's a certain point at which I just stopped paying attention. <laughs> at like 95 or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and after that, it's all Kanye, as far as I can tell. Well, we should probably get into the, get into the shits, because there's plenty of stuff going around. You're going mad on at the NBA, week. aren't you? I, I'm pretty upset with the NBA. I'm pretty upset with LeBron James in particular, but but maybe we do that first. Maybe we do some other stuff. Um, there is the the ongoing drama with the NBA in China. Um, the impeachment thing continues to unravel or ramp up or something. Who knows? Um, and there is a developing situation with the Kurds um, in Syria and Turkey. 
and the American withdrawal of sorts from the the theater there. Um, all of that, I think, is pretty fair game for this particular crowd, this panel of mm-hmm. distinguished gentlemen. Where where to begin, guys? Well, you really, I mean, all the text traffic has been about the NBA. I so think why don't you, why don't you just <laughs> a natural start for you <laughs> to, to about that. Yeah. So when, when, when did this drama begin? There was a tweet from an NBA executive with the Houston Rockets. Yeah. Um, and the tweet was something that seemed pretty innocuous um, in any other context. Stand with Hong Kong, fight for freedom, something along those lines. And a retweet, actually. Of, it was a retweet. Of, of, yeah, of yeah. a logo. Exactly. A right. logo. Wasn't even his own words. But that tweet has since been disappeared from the internet because this was a huge scandal. And it's a huge scandal for obvious reason. The NBA um, counts many, many millions of Chinese people, as well as, I suppose, the Chinese government, essentially indirectly as a partner and those millions of people as fans. Um, and the Chinese were less than enthusiastic uh, about this sentiment being expressed by an NBA executive. Um, he withdraws the tweet, deletes it um, from his account and issues an apology. Um, and various people in the NBA um, issue statements of their own, including the ownership of the Rockets, who go on to say, this gentleman does not speak for us. We love the Chinese. Um, I think it was, uh, what's his name? The Beard. Harden. Harden. James Harden. Sorry. Superstar athlete James Harden, who said he loves China and he's very sorry. Said he was sorry Mm -hmm. um, that this came up. And uh, he was, I believe, in Japan for an exhibition game. And interestingly, of course, uh, the good timing here for the NBA, the Lakers and the Nets, which big superstar athletes were all in China today for an NBA cares event that was supposed to happen today. And there was supposed to be another game later in the week. Um, I suppose that game was canceled. It yes. was canceled. The, event, canceled the event was canceled. There was, they were doing an event before the right? event. Um, the event, I, no, the was, event, canceled. The event yeah. was canceled just before Posters we started for the game. were coming down yeah. all over Shanghai, I guess is where the game was supposed to take place. It's not clear that the game will take place, but all Every, everything that's happening suggests that the Chinese government is not going to allow this game to proceed. Broadcasters in China have decided they are no longer going to be broadcasting games yeah. at least for the foreseeable future. Um, they, retailers online in China have stopped selling Rockets gear and right. perhaps are doing other things to similar NBA teams. And the NBA, which historically, when a lot of social justice stuff has come up in recent years anyways, um, there have been very prominent campaigns in support of various things. Um, LeBron James sort of has been at the forefront of a lot of these efforts with the I Can't Breathe t-shirts and the the, the hoodie uh, photographs that made the rounds after some prominent criminal justice reform watershed moments, I suppose it's fair to say. Um, but on this particular issue, with the exception of James Harden saying that he's very sorry and that he loves China and he loves everything about the the Chinese people and his and their fans. Um, the NBA has been pretty quiet and almost no one has said anything. Adam Silver has issued has made one statement and issued a second statement. And in the second statement, he did suggest that he doesn't want to, um, as a policy, sort of squelch the free speech rights of any uh, NBA employee, that there are certain values that are important to the NBA, including freedom of expression. 
um, but that the NBA isn't a political organization and that they're not in the business of sort of taking corporate positions on things well, like which this, is complicated a, Yeah, which was like a this. bit of a, a soft response, but was enough for the inflexible Chinese, and psychopathic mm-hmm. uh, Chinese dictatorship to actually, um, you know, cite that mm-hmm. as a problem and saying, oh, you're, you know, talking about their free speech rights. You have to go harder on these people. And, um, you know, but to, to your point is that, yeah, they, they haven't said very much recently. Is like a few things here and there. But they've done things, right? We've mm-hmm. been trading videos that have been popping up online of people being escorted out of games or having signs taken away from them in because, the United States, in of the United America. States of America, right. because it is, mm-hmm. yeah, because it is, uh, and in uh, DC. I oh, think, is that yeah, right? Yeah, it happened today. It happened today. Huh. Yeah, because it it, it offends the uh, Politburo in China uh, that that a foreign government is is uh, exerting so much control over fans, NBA fans in the United States is a bit disconcerting, to and say the very least. We had a couple of other uh, news developments before we get to pure commentary of it in that a bunch of lawmakers, including Ted Cruz and mm-hmm. Alexandria mm-hmm. Ocasio-Cortez, uh, sent a letter a couple of hours ago. We're recording this on, what is it, Wednesday? Um, <clears throat> to to the NBA uh, asking for like a four-part thing um, of they hope that the NBA respects the free speech of its uh, citizens and whatnot. Donald Trump made comments about that. He was invited to ask uh, to talk, uh, respond to the Chinese government pressure. And instead he criticized Steve Kerr and Greg Popovich, <laughs> the coaches yeah. respectively of the Golden State Warriors and the San Antonio Spurs. <laughs> Greg Popovich is a very interesting kind of mirror case of the way that Donald Trump treated it, mm. which is that when Popovich who's very, very outspoken, super kind of uh, woke, you would say, but he's old. He's like an old like military dude, so it doesn't totally fit. Mm-hmm. But he's very outspoken on a lot of issues. Um, he turned the question about China into a question about Trump uninvited in about 10 seconds, mm-hmm. I think. And Trump did the same thing, turning it back mm-hmm. onto Popovich and but Steve Kerr. Popovich also did say, as if Adam Silver had a very strident response to the situation. Right. He's um, like, called, he, I think he referred to him as brave. He compared him uh, uh, favorably to Trump in this uh, mm-hmm. In this uh, circumstance and Steve Kerr, unusually for him, uh, this is the charitable way of saying it, Mm -hmm. said that he wasn't very knowledgeable about the particular context in China. It's very complex and he looks forward to studying up on the issue. Yeah, no comment. That's a a classic. Mm -hmm. I'm not very knowledgeable on this. It's like, you know, I'm not a historian of World War Two, but here's (laughs) here's what I've heard. You know, you often hear the situation is very complex. Yeah, I hear the situation is, is very complex. And of course. Donald Trump's, you know, blathering response, uh, uh, rather distinct when um, you remember what he said about the NFL, mm-hmm. right? And about mm-hmm. Colin Kaepernick. I mm-hmm. mean, you know, the NFL was getting slapped around for getting into the politics game. Mm-hmm. And that's domestic politics. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot more sort of, you know, ho-hum to me than a foreign dictatorship exerting the kind of power that the Chinese are exerting now. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, no, it's, I mean, no one is is covering themselves in glory in this yet. Mm-hmm. Nobody, except for the, the the people who are actually going into stadiums, knowing that they're going to get ejected and, you know, holding up signs. Good for I was, them. I was really looking forward to media availability for LeBron James in particular, which was supposed to happen prior to this event. But aren't uh, they limiting Shanghai. media availability for they limited, everybody? They limited media availability for everyone. But this particular How event, I believe, Chinese was like sort of first. <laughs> right? um, and it's amazing. It, it's it's a very unusual circumstance uh, for multiple reasons. One. One, I, I don't think this is incredibly complicated. I mean, the Chinese government is a dictatorship. It's a dictatorship that has concentration camps today um, and that participates in all manner of human rights violations that people ought to be aware of. And the situation in Hong Kong is pretty damn straightforward, too. This is a, a weird 
unusual place that that has been allowed to develop for a while now, a century or more, actually. It was independent um, and has only recently been grafted back into China. And the Chinese have, despite their promises to the British, um, continued to encroach on the autonomy of the Hong Kong uh, citizenry. And the Hong Kong citizenry has begun pushing back. And there are violent conflicts with the state because the people of Hong Kong feel like they ought to have, I don't know, like the right to say what the fuck they want to say. This isn't so complicated. It's particularly not complicated from the point of view of the Chinese. And I remember back when the handover happened, I think it was Chris Patton who did it. It was a, the British representative who basically said, yeah, that's no, going to be fine. They don't, they, there's no I mean, this is the economic powerhouse of the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, Milton Friedman starts his uh, free to choose documentary in, in Hong, Hong Kong, Kong as yeah. this is the economic engine, not of Asia, but of the world. Mm-hmm. And if we you know, he starts a business. Remember that I start a business in four minutes in, in Hong Kong because there's no regulation and they don't want to jeopardize that. Um, of course, that was not going to last. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Friedman was also somebody who who made uh, the claim, which was plausible at the time and, you know, kind of still sort of holds water that, you know, um, economic freedom brings uh, political freedom. And that didn't actually happen in China. That was the first real big test case where that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. That was the presumption. But um, when the story, it, story isn't over yet, story isn't over yet. And, yeah. and, and by the way, in most places, people often cite that and say, ha ha. But in most places, it has happened. Right. Mm-hmm. So China is a, a kind of a unique case in a way. But keep in mind that this is the, the Chinese have been strongarming people about this in the, the smallest ways. And they buckle every time. Mm-hmm. So I think that probably the last one I can remember. And I don't know. Maybe it was Delta. That put Taiwan on one of their maps yeah. and routes, and they said, "If you don't take that off, you're not flying to China anymore." And they folded, right? In all their partner airlines and you know whatever the Sky Team or whatever, mm-hmm. like everyone's going to be affected. So they say, "All right, Taiwan, we're just going to wipe it off the map." So they, Which, they, they they win at this stuff. So and they're winning again. They're so, flexing soft power. Like, yes. And so this is what the states have done for the longest time. But now that we then there's somebody else doing it, it's it's shocking, and it's really interesting because like. The reality is, is that the NBA is in this mess because they took the money and they knew what they were signing up for. And they took the money because there's a lot of it. And mm-hmm. China loves basketball. Yeah. China's always loved basketball. Mm-hmm. Like it's sports like soccer and football never really took ground there. But basketball really did because of space constraints and obviously all the reasons that basketball proliferates in places. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it's a huge market for them. But they took the money. And like at the end of the day, like that's why there's they got themselves in this position, not because of what they said last week, but because of the past decade where they realized we're going to invest money here. We're going to take them. We're not going to. Um, insulate this potentially politically from us. What I am personally, like you mentioned that this is, this is starting now and this is just happening. I am fascinated because this is going, the people are very focused on the election of 2020, but the single biggest story of 2020 globally outside of the American election is going to be the Olympic games in Tokyo. Mm. And China has demonstrated specifically through this and a few other decisions that they've made, you know, interacting with American culture, like through Hollywood and that kind of stuff that they are, getting ready to flex their muscles in a way that the United States has not had an arrival for quite some time. Mm-hmm. And so Japan is hosting the 2020 Olympics. There will be a basketball game there. The NBA players will not be involved. And I'm actually curious if that might be one reason why they're not involved. Cause traditionally they try to keep that from college kids and that kind of stuff. But nevertheless, like this story is going to keep going until I believe January, July of next year. And it's going to be yeah. wild. In that I, I think one thing on the soft power thing, and, and, and you're right. I mean, it's a, it's, 
it's kind of disorienting when someone says soft power because it's exactly what it is, but it's a very harsh version of soft power. But there's something unique about China. The uniqueness of China is that when you have somebody, you have the Saudis and we take the money, everybody takes the money from Saudis and and that's, you know, journalists, that's states, that's TV companies, presidential libraries, presidential libraries, everything, uh, universities, we take the money, right? But when the, something like the Khashoggi thing happens, the Saudis feel it necessary to go prostrate themselves on, on 60 Minutes, and MBS is saying, no, 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 I'm sorry. No, no, I, I didn't know about it. I was, it was a mistake. And by the way, women are driving now. There is a, there, like the Chinese don't give a fuck. They don't have that instinct. I don't know why and what the difference is, is that why the Saudis will go out and say, yeah, we're sorry for all this stuff. Not always, right? But more so now under mm-hmm. MBS, mm-hmm. you have this thing. It's like you're and it was by everybody's account on his orders, mm-hmm. right? And he's going out there and saying, you know, we did it. I don't know. These guys are rogue guys. I can't. Yeah. And he says, I can't account for everybody in my kingdom yeah, yeah. what they do. But, you know, we're really sorry about it. it. Should it's the, the, Chinese, the Chinese don't even fake it, right? It's the difference between 25 million and 1.2 billion. I mean, it, <laughs> it really is. Because, I mean, having a, having a domestic market that is large sure. matters, yeah. right? Like, uh, like Turkey could get super mad at every single... Uh, you know, mention of the Armenian genocide, which it does. Mm-hmm. And that affects the speech of the United States government in a very shameful and stupid way. Uh, hopefully one, one point, but, 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 it, stop. One, but yeah. Turkey can't, can't lift a finger on any, you know, if Kim Kardashian wants to make it, and she has done this, yeah. wants to make a big deal about the Armenian genocide. They've got nothing. Cause mm-hmm. what? You're, you're not going to have the Hollywood movie come and play in Turkey. They're they don't, a regional they don't power, not a great power. Exactly. But, right. but you're missing the fact that the Saudi is um, kind of kind of an oil power. And we, we, yeah, but that, that means bending that, our, you know. But that means much less than it did in 1973 mm-hmm. because we make a lot of the a stuff bit, ourselves. A bit less, yeah. No, yeah. a lot yeah. less, I think. It's the like thing, they, can't, they can't put us over a barrel. The thing I find so distressing about this is the talent in the NBA, people like James Harden, whose name I forgot earlier, and LeBron James. LeBron James in particular, these people have sort of a cultural relevance and significance that any random quarterback in the NFL simply do not have. Absolutely. Uh, LeBron James as a cultural figure, not set, set aside the fact that he's independently wealthy, that he has like a billion, not a like he has a literal billion dollar lifetime endorsement deal from Nike. That's just one of his things. Mm. Perhaps as, it would as his be male pattern. Perhaps it, it would be. Yeah. Perhaps. And, and which tells you that there is no solution to this. Shit. <laughs> yeah. no, one, yeah. no one is more upset about the fact that they're going bald and better, better positioned to do something about it than LeBron. <laughs> yeah. And mm. nothing he's done has worked so far. Yeah. What does that tell you? Shit. It, none of it's, it's all fake. But, yeah. but, but if he were to say something about this, if he were to come out and perhaps it's harder when you're in Shanghai, maybe you're afraid that they won't let you leave, but damn it. Like LeBron, they can't try to try to not if let LeBron leave script right like, now. I think be, it would matter in a way matter. that but it LeBron, doesn't matter what anyone else says. It doesn't matter who the president of the United States is. It could be the most respectable human being alive. And for him to say something strong on this issue wouldn't matter. But for LeBron to make it his raison d'etre, for the entire season, it would be a big deal. He's LeBron's on the, the, the podcast. Talk to him. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> because he wants to work in movies. 
because he's been in mm-hmm. Smallfoot, because he's been let, in let Train Wreck. Let them wreck. try to stop him. Yeah, yeah. Let yeah. them try to stop him. Look, look, when we've talked about um, Dave Chappelle on the show, I mean, the first thing that we always say when talking about these specials and, you know, him going really pretty far out there, uh-huh. and, you know, because he, he has fuck you money. Yeah. Because he got $60 million for four specials and God knows what he got for that last one, which is another probably $30, $40 million. He can say whatever he wants. LeBron is the exact same thing. He can say what he wants. It doesn't cost him very much. Well, it, and if you this, have a billion dollars, cost him something right but but, but how really? much yeah really how much in the in the long term how much is it costing LeBron, LeBron I just James? I just don't know that any of the other things maybe that, he just doesn't want to actually cost them nearly yeah. as much as people imagine or pretend um with the exception of Colin Kaepernick like who exactly has paid a price for taking a stand like this and I, I'm I'm only saying that in that way because some people presume that he's paid a price for this it's not obvious to me that he has a couple things things rankle with me on this one is that obviously the nba has led with its sort of wokeness and i'm actually good with that like i i'm fine with it i think that there's i I don't believe in the shut up and sing thing at all absolutely not you and i uh, camille have disagreed about kaepernick in in particular uh doesn't matter for the sake of of the particular argument but like i i think it's fine i mean politics and sports mix yeah that's that's only the substance of his his claims and not and not the fact that he's speaking out do whatever you want and you know the it was only when athletes uh uh achieved free agency that they started talking about politics, right? Because mm-hmm. they did have that fuck you money, as you say. Like Bill Walton could talk about the Vietnam War and Joe Namath could wear pantyhose and whatever. Like people could <laughs> do weird things that weren't allowed before. I love those right next to each other. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> John Riggins can get the mohawk. It's, it's all good. Uh, but uh, uh, it, it's we are so focused on this right now in a way that I, I find strange or like at least telling at some point because uh, you have all these politicians who are coming out strong against the NBA right now, writing letters. Uh, There was an immediate sort of bipartisan upheaval at this. Everyone uh, came together finally on one issue, which is that it's really gross and ugly to watch the NBA, James Harden, Adam Silver, and everybody else just act so obsequious in the face of this. It's gross. Mm. It it feels un-American fundamentally. Two months ago, there was a story or a month and a half ago, there's a story in CNN that Donald Trump had a, a, a conversation with Xi Jinping saying, I, you know what, I'm not I'm going to like soft pedal criticism the of the Hong yeah. Kong stuff because we got to do a trade deal here. And in fact, his track record has shown he has soft pedaled that. The only thing that he's really said about this at all was that the U.N. and uh, 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 General Assembly in, uh, in New York on September 24th. And it was like a sentence or a paragraph. And it wasn't that strong. It was like, we hope. That China upholds its Hong Kong uh, democratic ideals. We'll be watching, and you know that'll affect the way that we judge them going forward. It, it was good, but better than not saying it. But that's the only thing that the president of the United States has said, and they've canceled events in which State Department people were going to talk about how it's really bad what they're doing in Hong Kong, or what it's really bad what we're doing with the Uyghurs, whatever else. Um, and, and it is really bad, and it's stepped up. It's it's really it ramped up and increased over the last two or three years uh, in ways that are really alarming. And it's so weird. This sort of American culture focuses on um, we can identify this. Uh, you know, even private sector kind of uh, the, you know, entertainment business here. What about the fucking president? You know, the president kind of matters. Well, I mean, this matters. Is, and this is from a president who during the campaign, we can, you know, we all know how he says the word because he said it so frequently and with such like venomous intent to 
China. Yeah. And that's beca- that's the Peter Navarro, you know, Robert Lighthizer. This is like the, the you know, and, and more than anyone, Steve Bannon, whose whose great enemy was China. And, you know, much he, you know, he ended up in Europe doing all these these things with like the far right in Europe, which was surprising because his concern previously was 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 mostly China. And it was mostly about trade issues and mostly about working class issues, et cetera. But, you know, I mean, it, it's it's a strange situation to to be in to see Donald Trump actually soft peddling everything on China for trade deals that don't happen too, and nothing has happened in that. And I have been posting stuff, um, and I thank everybody, the listeners who have come to to the Instagram page because it, it encourages me to post more uh, old outtake stuff. And I have <laughs> one today that I came across, just happened to come across because looking for something else uh, about um, China and trade with Roger Stone, um, oh. and it's pretty interesting. It's it's like six months after Trump's inaugurated, and um, I'm going to post them to see how Roger did in his his rest. Putin like predictions, which um, uh, uh, spoiler is weren't, weren't, wasn't so great. <laughs> we, should pro- <laughs> we should probably get to some of the other stuff, but I, I did want to mention the story in Deadspin um, suggesting that ESPN, um, the the news side of ESPN, there, there's some sort of internal memorandum um, insisting that the talent on air do not discuss the Hong Kong issue in sort of political in a political context that they focus specifically on sort of the implications for basketball related to this particular scandal because they want to not upset the Chinese presumably um, ESPN which is owned by Disney which was lampooned pretty severely uh, by the very fine people uh, over at uh, South Park just this past week who also have fuck you money and allowed themselves to say hey we don't give a shit what China says and China of course responded by taking everything South Park related <laughs> off of uh, all media in China yeah um, and I should say one more thing about the uh, ESPN situation apparently uh, is this from Brian Stelter yes uh, Stelter reported this yeah Brian Stelter apparently reached out to ESPN for comment and says while well, ESPN declined to comment uh, a source of the network pushed back on the contention that it was doing anything surprising or unusual um, while there were no all staff memos there were a few guidance emails sent to key staffers the source said and the guidance was essentially a reminder to cover the NBA story through ESPN's typical sports lens. Um, now, this is not so surprising, and it truly isn't a departure from ESPN's approach to certain other controversial um, issues. I remember um, the woman who was hosting the Sports Center, Jamel Hill, Jamel Hill, thing, yeah, Jamel Hill yeah. who was suspended. Um, and since landed over at, I think the Atlantic, the Atlantic where she's yeah. occasionally writing very yeah. bad columns, yeah. um, and yeah. has a podcast with a really ridiculous name. I don't remember. Unbothered, I believe it's called. Yeah. What, what I mean, what is, seriously? Like, why am I listening to this? Are you fine? I couldn't be bothered. <laughs> okay. <Yeah. laughs> I couldn't be bothered to prepare Every for week. this podcast. Yeah, I'm not bothered. <laughs> I'm fine. You know what I'm Too real. Yeah, good. <laughs> Anyways. Um, so I don't know. I, I, this will be interesting to see. I genuinely hope that that someone like LeBron like actually does something remarkable here. I've sometimes been critical of him um, because, again, it's the substance and not the fact that he's involved in activism. Um, but in this particular context, I really do think he could do some good. And mm. he's been seemingly willing to stick his neck out there on things. And think um, about it from this a, would be a, even more a competitive point of view. Like. Who can compete with the NBA? Who are you going to put in your feed, China? It's true. Mm. Are you going to put the European League? It's true. The WNBA? It's true. <laughs> this, this could be consequential. No. Yeah. no. This like, could be consequential. It doesn't come close. Yeah. 
No, you take I, the Lakers I, and the Nets I, off of the air. You, I, you I would defend ESPN in one way. I think it is advisable that the people that I routinely see on ESPN don't talk about politics, particularly one uh, politics uh, that involved China, oh. uh, which I suspect they even know less about than American politics. <laughs> you don't want Stephen <laughs> A. Smith to talk about China? No, I like when he's screaming about China. It's great. <laughs> it's scary. Like, um, but um, he, he's very much on the not so fantastic side of this. I mean, the the the, yeah. the oh. theme that I've heard repeated over and over again there is: look, we're doing business with China. Sometimes you have to hold your nose and sort of contend with things that are disagreeable. It's That's it's, ama- it's amazing it. to see a bunch of like talking head sports bozos become Gene Kirkpatrick and <laughs> saying, you know, dictatorships and double standards. We have to deal yeah. with Somoza Not because we're going to get the American standards. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the, yeah, that's what they're saying. Um, but I will make one recommendation um, that if you have a VPN that can handle it and get yourself <laughs> onto the BBC iPlayer, uh, there's a fantastic documentary uh, on the uh, BBC Storyville program on Tiananmen. Hmm. It's a two-hour uh, documentary, and it is really, 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 you really can't, good. You can't watch so, that but, in China. And, 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 no, you definitely can. And I think the BBC is probably, um, you know, look, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a fair point, too. I mean, all BBC sells stuff, I'm sure, to Chinese television, right? Mm-hmm. I'm sure that every one of these networks, and they broadcast stuff like this. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I mean, they, it's a fantastic piece. And if you don't know anything about it, there's also a lot of great new footage in it. There's a lot of um, the Tiananmen papers that have been sort of smuggled out um, from the Politburo and how they responded to it. It's it's really, really a fantastic piece of work. There is, I was just going to say, there is a legitimate business like quandary here because so many big tech companies do business in China and they have nearly all had to make either explicit, well-published, publicized compromises in terms of limiting access to certain technology or granting access to certain technology in order to do business in China. And I, it's something I've had to think about Myself, as I'm watching this take place as someone who cares about these issues and covers them, whether or not is that something that's appropriate to do. I think it's better that China be open. I think it's better that we have engagement with China rather than not. Um, but at the same time, there are certain compromises that one would hope businesses are not, in fact. But let's be clear about this. Yeah, be specific, actually. Be clear about this also to make sure that people understand this, and I'm sure most people do, is that this isn't anything unique to China. It happens in media every day in America, Mm -hmm. but we're just dealing with a fetid, nasty authoritarian regime that's been in power for 70 years and, you know, wiped out tens of millions of people in in, in two great periods in Chinese history. And the same regime is is governing China. So that's bad, right? But keep in mind, (laughs) keep in mind that, you know, Rolling Stone magazine is going to run a really, really bad review of a Lou Reed record in 1975. And they have a Columbia advertisement that's supposed to take up the back page. That was an issue. Mm-hmm. People talked about that. They would have that conversation in editorial meetings. People still have that conversation in editorial meetings. You are doing business with people who are your advertisers and you piss all over them. You piss all over their products and you have to be careful about that. And, 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 and you know, I don't care because I'm not in that business end. But, you know, the difference here is that obviously it's an authoritarian regime and it's much worse. But obviously, like everybody in the media world is dealing with not pissing off somebody. And it's the money people who are funding it. And there's also a, a like a, a technological difference too. I was thinking about um, uh, my old friend Robert Shear's uh, coverage uh, of uh, of the Soviet Union in the 1980s. He has this great piece called "When Pepsi Took Moscow." And um, back then, you know, you could be a consumer goods business uh, uh, based in the United States and go to the Soviet Union or the Soviet bloc and do work there. GE bought tongues from a light bulb factory in Hungary in 1988 or 1987. Um, But like 
they weren't reading your tweets. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a big difference. Like they, they can immediately see things now in ways that weren't on the table then. So those compromises weren't as obvious. I like yeah. that Bob Shear, by the way, was more upset uh, at Pepsi than he was at Brezhnev. <laughs> It's pretty, it's pretty not true. Not true. Not right, true. Right, well, now, you know, there's an even there's another story of sports intersecting with China in a really wild way that is kind of under the radar of the NBA thing right now, but mm-hmm. is actually far more fascinating. If you ask me, there's uh, an esports league called Hearthstone. Yes. And uh, Hearthstone is under Blizzard, which makes Overwatch and a number of, you know, actually really fun to watch games, if you ask me. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of their players went on one won a bunch of prize money and then said enthusiastic support of, of Hong Kong on a live blizzard stream. They took the money away from him. Oh, they stripped him of the title. Oh, they, I believe that the people who were interviewing him were sacked. I don't know the exact details this, of that. This is blizzard that you're talking this about. This is blizzard. They did the make employees, of of yep, employees yeah. at a walkout today. Mm-hmm. Uh, the day that we're recording this Wednesday, the, uh, the ninth. And, yeah. um, and basically if you look at that, but they're so very heavily entangled with China that I don't know how they get the hell out of this. Yeah. The NBA is entangled. Don't get me wrong. They got yeah, stores yeah. everywhere. They got huge fans. Blizzard. If you look at the overwatch league, they just had their championship, like solid league. I'm a big fan personally. Mm-hmm. They got, Four, te- three teams in China. They got Hangzhou, Guangzhou, and uh, Shanghai, mm-hmm. and those are Chinese teams with based in China with Chinese money. They've they've invested directly in yeah. a lot of companies. They bought a they, franchise. Yeah, it's it's the the fan base and the potential customer base yeah. in China that gives them a great deal of power. And it's it's odd from a foreign policy standpoint. Perhaps we're starting to pivot here a little bit. I've I've become increasingly concerned about the degree to which the Chinese are able to flex their muscles and the red I'm Chinese. always, yes, red the red Chinese. Chinese. <laughs> That's fair. Uh, and, and I've, and of course I've always been aware of the discordant values of the Chinese government and the United States. The fact that we talk about these principles and values like free expression, human rights, things that are very important to Americans ostensibly um, and things that the Chinese government has some, some challenges with. Um, it matters like who's investing in your company and it matters the degree to which power soft or otherwise is how it's distributed, I should say. Yeah. Um, and uh, I don't know. It's, it's a, it's a challenge to, to know how to navigate something. There's like a lot that. of For someone who right- believes in limited government is as deeply as I do. A lot of our new uh, kind of uh, illiberal conservative friends, this kind of Sohab, or uh, I can't get his name right. Um, Thank you. Uh-huh. Um, but like this, uh, James Polis is someone who's, who made this point just today on uh, Twitter. Like, uh, uh, not only does this show that, uh, you know, Milton Friedman and the globalists uh, were wrong about, you know, the capitalism uh, exporting our values to them, um, uh, wrong about that. But also um, they did that uh, precisely because it, it it kept their own privilege uh to be our rulers against everyone else like this has become this has become an That's arrow in the quiver yeah. i know but like mm-hmm. there's there there is a new uh kind of um trump influenced conservative line of thinking that the globalists uh i think russ Dowd had uh, talked about chimerica in his in his uh column recently which is a term i'd never heard anyone ever say it's a good before, pokemon i like that before, <laughs> um but uh, no that that they are exporting our through the free trade that camille foster loves mm-hmm. they are 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 forcing their values down our throat and it's worth thinking about is that true right um mm-hmm. i mean a lot of times it happens more on the hollywood level which yeah. is that 
okay, they invested some money in Top Gun. And so we're going to take the little Taiwan flag off of the the patch thing or, you know, Red Dawn, which kind of pisses me off. The Red Dawn remake, Mm -hmm. it was going to be about China and then like, "Ah, (laughs) it was was never going to be a good film. The only one who can't punish you uh, and even they can hack your emails. uh, I was just going to say uh, and they they punish you that way. But the thing the thing is, we own our values Mm -hmm. ultimately. And I think part of the response to this uh, has been healthy it's a sign that we remember that we care about some of us right uh, uh care about the culture of free speech which is a real thing and it exists beyond the kind of uh legalistic Pat hear you say that uh, pat's wrong he's been wrong <laughs> about this forever yeah um uh, the culture matters if 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 there is no culture of free speech in America. The Supreme Court eventually will stop its current strong protection of free speech. This is shown widely issue after issue. The Supreme Court will not just be standing alone when the entire society is is somewhere else. Right. So, can, uh, I was Go on. No, I want to ask you a question. I want to be sure. Oh, we're holding hands okay. now. <laughs> Ebony. <laughs> Ebony. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask about this, this, this dynamic where markets are supposed to make places like China more like us. It um, has though, but but the way that it's supposed to work, it's not it's not magic. No, you it's not magic. It's only the individual it, it, citizens. You give them something to fight for, and you expose them to our values. Yes, through media and rock and roll and blue what is, jeans what is, and all what that is other China stuff. doing its damnedest to prevent mm-hmm. to prevent the proliferation of information precisely through, right. through you know getting you know Weibo and this stuff and you know blocking people from seeing X Y and Z. I mean, like you know South Park says something like shut it down, shut mm-hmm, it down. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's their major sort of beyond their sort of you know generic foreign policy they're trying to prevent this stuff from seeping in i'll tell you what if you're trying to prevent this stuff from seeping in and doing it in such a like sort of psychotic way and investing so heavily in it you know its effectiveness if it wasn't effective you wouldn't do it Mm -hmm. you'd just sort of take a background and say you know we'll do the movie this is the turks did this by the way we'll do a movie we'll do our own version of an action movie and we'll hire fucking Gary Busey to play an evil Jewish guy <laughs> which by the way is what Turkey yeah. did it was the, the, the something, something of the wolves I can't remember it was. but um, uh, uh, oh and I, I think was it not Dean Kane was he in it some some other uh, no the guy who's the guy that was in um, Billy Zane Billy Zane yeah, Dean Kane Billy it's, Zane it's all the same Valley, Valley of the Woods Valley of, uh, Valley of the Wolves yeah, yeah. which uh, there, at one point there's a Jewish doctor uh, who I believe is played by the very Jewish Gary Busey <laughs> Uh, he's like goes from Buddy Holly to like a member of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, and like you know he's like stealing people's organs and the rest of it. No, like you know we can compete. The Chinese had a big um, uh, action movie last year, two years ago. Yeah. It was a big hit, right? And they put a ton of money in. And this is state putting money into it, but they are trying to actively counteract and counter-program to American culture. Mm-hmm. And the reason they do that is because it's effective. Yes, there is something to be said that it, it has not you know, destroyed the Chinese government. It came very close at times. The Ch- I mean, re- remember that, that Deng Xiaoping, beyond mowing down students, um, most of whom the leaders of which are in the United States now, teaching at universities are all quite interesting and eloquent, which is why you should watch that documentary. But, you know, he opened up the economy and that economy opened up and they knew the bargain they were making. I mean, the Chinese economy after the Great Leap Forward and after the Cultural Revolution and after the Gang of Four and all this stuff, it's just, 
in collapse and was never anything to be to be um, envied in any way. And so obviously Deng Xiaoping makes this sort of modernization move. The Vietnamese around the same time are doing the same thing. And that is going to really test their authoritarian power, which is you see every day in China, which you did not see. And of course, to your point of technology, you didn't see in the seventies the, the and eighties in this, in the same way. Right. I mean, the, the cultural revolution was a mass psychosis, right? It was not like everybody here said something wrong. There were these delusions. They were making things up, but to think and to say that American culture and American values have not sort of seeped in throughout the world um, even in, in, in bad places. And that is a good thing. And it isn't, as Camille said, it isn't magic. I, I, I think that Camille and I had a wonderful conversation one time ages ago. And we talked about a TV show about this too. Mm. Um, and we were talking about um, black culture throughout the world. Mm. And it is amazing. I was in Libya right before the revolution started. And myself and a few other journalists, one in particular, <laughs> who you know too, okay. uh, escaped from the Gaddafi-led pack. And we went into the souk in um in Tripoli. And there was the first thing we saw, I have a photograph of it, uh, a big spray paint um, uh, that just said Tupac. Right. And then we <laughs> went in and there were these guys that had all these like hip hop shirts on. And I was like, the guy probably had like a fucking fat boy shirt on or something. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know, the losing foot, the losing Super Bowl team and then a fat boys t-shirt. Um, but like, and they also had a bootleg DVD kiosk and there was like, like rap videos and stuff on DVDs. And I remember seeing that the fat Albert movie <laughs> just come out and it was on a DVD there. And it was like, you couldn't, you couldn't legally do it. And all these kids were like rebelling by embracing black culture in a place that it was very, very hard to actually access this stuff without reliable internet connections, without any high speed internet and without, you know, with a government that prevented this stuff from being imported. So, you know, American culture, it's, it, it's dominant and it has a positive effect. Obviously it's not, you know, creating a good governance in Libya or in China. But because it's not doing that doesn't mean we should totally discount it. I, uh, so I'm really happy that I'm here because this is legitimately one of my favorite topics of like, um, I keep coming back to obviously the phrase soft power, but like there's a reason that Japan and the United Kingdom, which are two fair, like they're large economies, don't get me wrong, but two fairly small countries. There's a reason that they punch so high above their weight internationally. And it is because of their cultural exports. Mm. The United Kingdom has always 100%. succeeded uh, with its cultural exports because again, they invest a lot of money in it. Uh, English translates very well internationally and Japan speaks for itself. I mean, it, the economy of Japan is heavily dependent on advertising. Japan anime is one of the most profound cultural exports that they've come up with. Mm-hmm. Um, authors like Miyazaki are like well beloved in the American uh, Hollywood, like Hollywood and whatnot. And what you see in, in um, China is that they envy that very, very much. And they're investing heavily in their studio system. They, I think they paid Pinewood uh, to build them the biggest studio complex in the world. And there's a reason for that. And so I read about Chinese box office in my newsletter all the time because I'm endlessly fascinated by a, what they, uh, what they want to see and be what they oftentimes implicitly see. And so you see things like we, I think you were referring earlier to the wandering earth. Yeah. I which, think that was the big, the big one from yeah, a couple so years ago, last year. It was last year. That was like, it was a disaster movie and yeah. it was a disaster movie. And it's like, again, how do, how does America solve Armageddon? I don't know. We throw some miners at it and try to fix the problem with bombs. <laughs> how does China do it? Well, they have a top down managed government and everybody <laughs> working together trying to fix the wandering earth. So yeah, you can yeah. learn a lot about cultures yeah. by what they export and how, 
how they solve these problems, which I think is really, really cool. Keep I mean, making just, Ishtar over and over again. <laughs> <and over. laughs> but if you just put an Aerosmith score to that bureaucratic yeah, yeah, yeah. nightmare, uh, it'll be fine. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I don't want to close my eyes. I just want to point out something that if this were any other country we're talking about, I would have ripped like so many accents right now. And I'm just holding back so bad because I want to. To be yeah. clear, Morgan yeah. was showing me a Hong Kong protester uh, who yeah, did yeah. the most hilarious South Park accent yeah. about but, China. But, and but it, wasn't, it? it wasn't, uh, it wasn't, um, when you say South Park, it sounds like he was imitating them. We could drop a clip in. I can drop a clip in. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. but like, really? Yeah. No, I, I can't. I can't. Not this week. There are limits. There are limits. I mean, I will, all, I will always say this. I don't know why there are limits because. He's the, got a kid in private school. I could, well. I, could, I could mimic that guy's voice perfectly. He actually talks like that. So I don't know why it's offensive. He just talks like that. Well, let's. So let's uh, I wanted to talk about um, the, the situation in the Middle East now. Um, and the withdrawal of American troops in Syria. And uh, I think that the reshuffling of American troops, this is it's interesting and it's complicated. And there are plenty of interesting things that we could talk about related to this. Um, I'm trying to I'm, I'm wondering where we should sort of focus our fire here. I'm thinking about what's playing out in the domestic scene um, with the impeachment proceedings that are starting to ramp up. The president essentially selling the Democrats after saying initially, of course, we'll comply. I'm going to respond to all of this. This is just a joke, but I'm going to respond. And then proceeding to say, you know what? Screw you, people, Mm -hmm. Um, which I presume happened because we started to see some additional reporting and developments with the leaking of these text messages, which lent further um, yeah. support to the narrative that suggests that maybe there was, in fact, a quid pro quo with respect to the money that was supposed to go to Ukraine being attached to assurances that the president was trying to extract from them, that they would, in fact, investigate both his political opponents and for the in the 2020 election, specifically Joe Biden and his son, um, but also that they would look into finding those damn email servers um, that he imagines are someplace in Ukraine. The fact that the president is pushing back like this has has created a bit of a firestorm domestically. And a lot of people imagine this as a, a huge constitutional crisis. The Democrats and Congress broadly looking to impeach the president, the president saying, Fuck you. I dare you. I'm not responding to you. I don't have to. This is constitutionally illegitimate. And then this other thing starts to play out on the foreign policy stage with the president seemingly withdrawing. I think that might be a bit generous of a description of the sort of troop shuffling that's taking place in Syria. The troops are not leaving Syria. They're leaving particular parts of Syria. And they seem to be leaving because the president is kind of doing something to satisfy Turkey. Of course. Essentially allowing them to go in, claim certain regions of Syria that have been occupied by Kurds who have been allies of the United States in fighting back against ISIS in the region for two decades. A couple of years now. I mean, I mean, we at Halabja, we made an incredible uh, mistake in either 87 or 88 when we um, supplied the weapons that, that Saddam Hussein gassed the Kurds with. Uh, since then, um, we have been allied with them in various degrees of um, seriousness and effectiveness. But I think this is probably one of the most shameful periods in a pretty shameful presidency, particularly when it comes to foreign policy. It is inexcusable on every level. And, and I really resent the people, and I know I'll get some male male about this who instinctively think well this is what one should do 
in a uh, kind of uh, pullback from the Middle East, non-interventionist way. Um, okay, well, th- that's like Rand Paul, of course, somebody pointed out today that mm-hmm. he had he had said we should give the Kurds their own country. Mm-hmm. Their own country, he in, said, in I think 2015, 2015 if, they if, if they fought ISIS, which they did. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is important to remember that the United States lost in Iraq about 4,000 troops, which caused a, you know, national nightmare, which, you know, we see Ellen DeGeneres on TV with the man who, who launched that war. And we have, you know, people saying, can he even be friends with her because of this? Mm-hmm. The Kurds lost 11,000 people fighting ISIS, 11,000 people. Keep, it's three times almost the amount of people who died fighting in Iraq, Americans who died fighting in Iraq. And they did that with American support, American weapons and American assurances. And all of that stuff was pulled out because Donald Trump loves strongmen. He had a conversation with a strongman. He's not listening to his own people. Imagine the frustration. And this is coming out from everybody within this government of that. He's not listening to us. He's entranced by Erdogan. And he's doing things on Erdogan's behalf. Why that is happening, who knows? There's a number of theories, but it's pointless to speculate right now. But what we have done to the Kurds is we are, I mean, it was a day later, a day. This is how fucking calculated this is. A day later, and bombs are blowing up in, 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 in Kurdish supply routes, quote unquote. Right? Mm-hmm. And, oh, well, you know, the, 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 you know, the YPG is affiliated with the PKK and Ochalan, these people are terrorists and whatever. <laughs> that's something that never concerned us before, by the way, it's all of a sudden concerning us now. It's concerned the, 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 the Turks before and the Turks have been waging war against them for some time. And, you know, you can make that argument and they, and, and the PKK has been, been a pretty, pretty awful and, and, and done some pretty awful things in the past, but there are stages and phases in this stuff. And, and since our um, recent partnership with them in defeating ISIS, uh, that has not happened. Um, very, very distinctly has not happened. And the other thing to, to, is, is that we have, a, a, you know, an open air prison camp with what 60,000 people in it, about 60,000 plus people. Um, there was a story right when I was going to have the subway that the Americans took out two of the Beatles and people who have followed this story will remember who those people are. The four uh, head loppers uh, in ISIS that were, were um, killed James Foley. Mm-hmm. Um, the British guys in a documentary on HBO about it, by the way, about, about um, about the main uh, guy from from London, the two others were caught, and they called them the Beatles. Right, that was the joke because they they were the British guys. Mm-hmm. They came and interrogated them, and they gave them all Beatle names. They've been caught, and the Americans exfiltrated them. Uh, apparently, in the past twenty four hours. Jeez. What does that mean? That means that the American government, who hand this over to a destructive, nasty, half Islamist dictatorship, mm-hmm. does not trust these people to hold on to these high value prisoners. And this is the seeds of caliphate 2.0. And we are just leaving it. We are not protecting that prison. We do nothing to protect that prison. We do some things, right? But the protection of that prison is run by the Kurds. And what are the Kurds now? They're packing up their stuff and they're getting the hell out of there before they're absolutely destroyed by, by Turkish troops. It is shameful in almost every way. Mostly, and even if you think this is a foreign policy, the right thing, you do not lie to people who have you know, created what you are claiming as your foreign policy victory. I defeated ISIS. By the way, let's give Obama some credit. And, you know, not something we do often in the show, but they were well on the way to, to pushing ISIS into a little pocket when Donald Trump took over in, 2000, mm-hmm. in 2017. So the groundwork was laid. And he says, well, if I'm going to destroy it, bomb the shit out of them. And I remember early in the show talking about Donald Trump. Th- how many do you remember? I, I remember that saying, joking, how many Kurds does Donald Trump think there are? 
Because everything on, on the deb- debate stage, he said the Kurds will do. It was the always his answer. Yeah. His, his answer was the Kurds, <laughs> right? And, and, and it was uh, one of his first big gaffes was with Hugh Hewitt. Remember when he couldn't uh, he couldn't differentiate between the Kurds and the Kuds Force? Yeah. yeah. Iranian Kuds Force. And that was a that was a funny. It was like, oh, this is funny. And like now one of those there's one of those every five minutes. We forget about it. <laughs> and but, Hugh Hewitt is fucking running a, apologia on a. Oh, and minute, he, and he attacked Hugh Hewitt relentlessly from the stage and from offstage. Um, and, and then these guys are just like, you know, lap dogs, just, you know, can I kind of get smacked again? But, you know, this if, if he didn't actually run it the way that he did. And he's like, oh, I'm fulfilling a campaign promise. Oh, my God. Who is believing this? But isn't isn't there a legitimate perspective that could be articulated where you begin with first that foreign policy? I mean, it's it's going to change from administration to administration and the promises that are made by the Obama administration to the Kurds. Yeah, but he one, kept, he kept one those can't promises. necessarily have an expectation no, that, that was that Donald was Trump will continue he actually, he to those were promises. our promises well, he last week, down. or someone else. He doubled down. No, but, like, but I'm just saying. But those were you can. Mm-hmm. But those were our promises. Okay, Trump's but, promises last week. Fair, in, totally fair. But in the abstract, like if it were President Camille who was actually inaugurated, and President Camille had said all along, we'd be stepping over fields of dead Kurds. Sorry, Camille had said all along. Listen, I. I don't think we should be paying so active a role in the Middle East right now. I don't think that the decisions that brought us into the circumstance were the right ones. I think when we look at the miserable situation in Syria, it's imperative that we contemplate how all of this began in the first place. And withdrawing from the region is never going to be nice. It's never going to leave us with sort of a field of roses. So I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it gradually. I hope I do it in a way that doesn't com- leave the place completely dismantled <laughs> I like that and, destru- and destroyed. But but I do expect it to be bad because there is there is nothing but bad choices here. I like that. President. There's first of all um, a couple of things is that it's very different than Fallujah in 2004. The number of people that are on the ground there is very, very small. This is costing us very little, right? We're getting an enormous, enormous benefit for very, very little cost. The number of people that look, the Fox, Fox News is uh, like, um, you know, foreign policy person or whatever had this tweet storm about talking to the special forces people there and how absolutely gutted they were. And they said, like talking to people who said, I've never felt betrayed as somebody who's in the special forces, like these are people I've been working with sure. for years sure. and we've been promising them th- these things in this fucking mouth breathing, knuckle dragging idiot comes in in one day because he can be, you know, we talked about this last week he can be persuaded by, you know, um, you know, videos of, of Syrian children with foam coming out of the mouth because Jared Kushner says, or Afghan women in pants. So it d- decides his foreign policy. And then he goes and, and talks to Erdogan and then Erdogan's like, get him out of there. I want to take over. And he's like, all right, cool. Mm-hmm. Let's do it. I mean, this is no way to run a foreign policy for a million reasons, particularly because no one is ever going to trust us again, particularly when this guy's president. I suspect if we if we if we clean this absolute rot out of D.C., you know, if we drain the swamp, as it were, then maybe people will start trusting us again. But, you know, this is really, really costly when it comes to allies in things that we need in places that we aren't even in, in places militarily. Mm-hmm. We think in this military term all the time. There are other places that w- where we exist that we need the cooperation of other countries that we're not going to get now because they they suspect that, you know, Donald Trump's going to, you know, watch a cartoon that, you know, made him a little irritated that day. And he's going to he's going to collapse an entire deal. But Donald which is Trump, essentially to, what your, did. to your point, Camille, mm-hmm. um, Trump uh, had a tweet uh, today. Again, we're, we're recording this on Wednesday mm-hmm. saying that the wars in the Middle East were the biggest uh, foreign policy disaster ever in American foreign policy. Like maybe mm-hmm. that's a hy- hyperbolic, but mm-hmm. like 
Not He's good. right that they were a disaster. Yeah, not good. Like, that's great. Okay, so I'm glad um, about him talking about the foreign policy of 2003. Meanwhile, here in 2019, mm-hmm. is he actually withdrawing troops anywhere? He's not. This is an important he, point. I sure. mean, we're talking about, a, what, 100 troops? Less than 100 troops? Even At some point, there was even, they said there was 50, more like yeah, two dozen yeah. um, here. Um, but there was reporting right before we started recording, uh, I think it was on CNN, <coughs> saying that there's a lot more knowledge about the phone call with Erdogan that it was basically, I'm going to do this, Trump. Okay, I will make sure to get my people out of the way. There's, Great. there's an Erdogan whistleblower? Uh, this is something uh, along those lines. It was a lot more coordinated, and it makes sense just atmospherically of what we have seen from this, um, that they talked about it, and mm-hmm. he decided that this is a thing to do. Um, the Camille Foster uh, uh, line of thinking would be is, is my line of thinking, which is why why do we have even two dozen people anywhere? Mm-hmm. Um, why do we have anyone in Syria? Why don't we get everybody home from Afghanistan? I'm all for that. And the way that you do that is that you you actually talk to the people who are carrying out your foreign policy. Sure, um, I don't know. Like people in the Joint Chiefs staff, mm-hmm, maybe mm-hmm. the 80 allies that you're partnering with there, maybe the actual Kurds on the ground. Before, you know, there are friends today, and tomorrow they're going to be massacred by Turkey. Um, like maybe you have a little bit more uh, consultation in that process. N- none of that is, is happening. Justin Amash mm-hmm, pointed mm-hmm. out, as Rand Paul is saying, oh, you know, he's uh, uh, Trump is, is uh, fulfilling his. His campaign promises here, mm-hmm. Justin Mosh, I think, rightly points out, we're not withdrawing anybody from Syria. And this isn't an anti-war move. Right. This is a this is a move. This is like, uh, you know, if the equivalent in Vietnam would be we're not just pulling out from Vietnam. We're saying, hey, Cambodia, can you come over here? These fields, they need oh more killing. God. And then oh, justifying it on, on Twitter by saying, you know, they buy F-35s for us back to the China thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, he actually justified it saying, you know, they're a big trading partner. Us. He right. also let, said, he let also, him bomb uh, like Kurds. That's fine. He mm-hmm. also said the Kurds didn't help us at Normandy. That happened. That was today. Yeah. bizarre. Yeah. 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 So he yeah. 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 lifted very, from a Kurt Schlister column. It just feels that true. Yeah, yeah. What, 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 I'm sorry. What's the what's the argument that the Kurds uh, the, <laughs> the Kurds weren't there when we were attacking Pearl Harbor? No, the Kurds weren't there when we were uh, in Normandy uh, and the Kurds weren't there in these important points in World War Two. So, you know, come on. He said that today. At the White House. I'm sorry. And, and, and just to be clear about this, the genesis of that is a column. By, by a human being with functioning frontal lobes in some way. They actually put pen to paper. Yes. Who is this? Kurt Schlick. I can't pronounce his name. Okay. Is that I, the, I, the town hall? I, I, the, town, I, the town hall. Like, so uh, his, like, his argument is that. Basically gateway pundit. Uh, okay. So Ben, like but, Turkey was is the argument? Like. Uh, yeah, no, no. I, I, yeah. I, that's not. Yeah, where yeah. was Turkey in World War II? <laughs> that's, that's not true. Um, like, that is really a- astonishing. Yeah. He, that's really. I, mean, I, I actually, I very as people, you guys all know, I'm very rarely at a loss for words. But that I have no idea. I don't know what to say to that. That's insane. I would just yeah. say the weirdest part. It just like it's profoundly sucks that the best case scenario in this situation is that this is the last ten minutes of Charlie Wilson's war, where mm-hmm. we're screwing ourselves in twenty years by destabilizing the region. It just because again, it seems like what the. What we're kind of getting around Further is further destabilization. Yeah, exactly. yeah, I was going to say yeah. that the, uh, the, the yes. destabilization the, the first began a wrong while ago. thing to happen in the Middle East. Yeah, uh, <laughs> uh, but it it seems very interesting that like 
the force that was there, as I've come to kind of understand it based on this conversation, is that like these were not necessarily there for active uh, measures. It was mainly just right. like as long as there's an American, like as long as we have Steve that standing right. right next to the Kurds, Turkey's not going to roll over them. Absolutely. And by telling Steve, you can go home now, as a result, we remove that. But, and that's, that right. that's, but that's the theory. Mm. I mean, it, what happens when Steve gets fucking killed? A Maybe it's an accident. Maybe it's an accident. Maybe it's some rogue element of the, the Turkish government that decides we want to do something anyways. We don't give a fuck if the Americans are there. At what point does this become a shooting war that involves the Americans and the Americans, the president the of Turkey's the United States, NATO. essentially? You, it, sure. Yeah. But again, it's, it, the escalation could happen. It's a dictatorship. <laughs> as as Moynihan yeah, just pointed but out. Yeah, to your point also, Moynihan, the, the the earlier point that you made I thought was great that it was just after chatting with Erdogan that this happened because you just know and the worst part of you know that if the Kurds had a a meatball with a bad haircut and a bad mustache yep. who was on the phone with Donald Trump, <laughs> he right. would be obsequious to them as well. And that's just what and like that's the difference. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I, I it's funny because I was watching that old Roger Stone interview and he's flattering Trump and flattering Trump. And um and then he says that very thing. He said, Look, the the problem with Trump is that he's so susceptible to flattery mm-hmm. and it's just like, it's been his whole career and he'd known him for since like the early eighties mm-hmm. when he was like doing like political hit jobs for him. Um, and that's true. Right. I mean, it, it's amazing to me that, you know, we always go back to like the, the, the fact that anyone ever thought that this man played 4d chess or anything, but you know, 1d checkers, mm-hmm. but you know, that he was thinking this stuff through, he's just a dummy and he's flattered by this stuff. He's easily convinced by things. And he was going to be reined in by the by. Well, he was going to be supported by the best team, the best people. Right. And the rest of us were like hoping, you know, hope after hope, like, no, he's going to be reined in Mm -hmm. by the best people. And he steamrolls everybody. And that's what you get from these whistleblower stuff. That's what you get from people that are in the room who are leaking about this stuff. People in the intelligence community, people within the military establishment. Mm -hmm. They were like, you know, he got rid of the military people. Right. That was before the Bannonites said the generals. There was a general. You know, Kelly, Mattis, H.R. McMaster. Got to get rid of the generals because they're Mm -hmm. the globalists, the neocons and the rest of it. And they're influencing the president because they understood how impressionable he was. And once they got them out of there, that was the idea get him out of here. And the only general should be in there is Mike Flynn mm-hmm. because Mike Flynn is a stooge of, you know, like Trump who, whoever the last person who, who, who so sat on I, his couch. Can ahead. I channel Tulsi Gabbard for, for a moment here? I yeah. mean, Matt, you were saying earlier that a Camille Foster presidency, you know, maybe you're consulting with all of these advisors who can give you some advice on how to do this, but considering what, the establishment position is on a number of these things. If I were to walk into a room of knowledgeable military and foreign policy experts in Washington, D.C., and I say, how do I get myself out of this? I just want to extricate myself from the situation. I don't think it's the responsibility of the United States government, certainly not without authorization from Congress that is less than, I don't know, 20 fucking years old to be involved in Syria. I want out. How do I do it? I would expect that the response that you would get almost uniformly from these people is it can't be done. Yeah. You have to stay, which stay we've seen, course. which we've seen in Afghanistan. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, the president went in first interview with a foreign source uh, or with a major newspaper uh, before he became uh, president in January of 2017 um, was with The Guardian and uh, I think uh, um, uh, a German newspaper. Um, and he said, like, I don't know why we're in Afghanistan. Like we've been there forever. Not really. What are we doing there? We should probably leave. I think he was right about that. I I think there still isn't a good question about this. He said 
uh, sporadically similar things as president. And every time he turns to his people, they give him what you kind of uh, uh, describe as their worldview. It's like, oh, we can't do it because, you know, it's going to be bad. And, um, you know, just wait another six months or another 12 months. This is a problem. And part of the problem is that the foreign policy establishment, which Michael Moynihan is a member of. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, uh, this is this. They are. They, there's a default interventionism among those people. It's and the only kind of bad outcome and, that they're and, concerned with. And is there withdrawing. is. And there is. Uh, uh, a lack hand, of but. there's a general lack of of knowledge associated with like f- actual tangible foreign policy knowledge associated with people who are from a, a intervention skeptic point of view. That is a total thing. And that exists in the world. Mm-hmm. However, we're on year three of a presidency. Mm-hmm. At some point, you're a manager. You got to find Camille Foster. You got to find Tulsi Gabbard. You got to find. Christopher Preble at the Cato Institute. You got to find people who've been actually talking about this with some amount of intelligence, with some amount of insider uh, uh, analysis of something here and come up with a better plan than dude, just talk to me on the phone. Uh, (laughs) I'm going to override our policy tomorrow in a way that's going to grease the skids for a massacre, mm-hmm. right? Like yeah. you, there's got to be a, 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 you have to put it on the manager at some point. I, I, yes. Washington yeah. is a swamp and it's an intervention swamp and that's a bad thing, but you've got to, you've got to do something with that. I don't think it's totally uniform though. I don't think that they're there and you know, there's some reporting out there to suggest this and, you know, being around this stuff, you, you, you tend to realize that it's not, it's not a sort of Chomsky parable mm. in the sense that people in the foreign policies, in the military establishment, don't like entanglements in needless, costly, bloody foreign wars either. Mm-hmm. They, they they legitimately do. I'm sure there's some that really do, and we saw that no, in I 2004. Think they, I think they believe it's a necessity. I, I think there's some that do, and some and some who don't. But mm-hmm. you know, I think that that you know, when when they, if you were to say in the Camille Foster presidency, I want to get out of this, and they would be very deliberate about it, and that would probably annoy you. But I think that's possibly the right way of doing it. But Donald Trump has no idea, no policy. This this idea that, you know, in my this, I'm fulfilling a campaign promise is that after the campaign, you made promises to the Kurds. Mm-hmm. So which promise are you talking about here? The other thing is that you cannot do this and say, I mean, think about this. Like, I want, I want to, you know, if you want to, to extricate yourself from Syria, you have to think about the things that you have to do to get there, right? Mm-hmm. The fact that nobody impressed upon him and maybe they did and he just didn't listen that the core of the next caliphate is sitting in that territory and we must do something about it prior to you i mean he brings up the europeans in a way that is that is beyond incoherent that they don't want to take them back and they're not and and then he's he's like a record skipping on their like they're not paying their fair share kind of NATO thing. And mm-hmm. it's like, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He's offending European allies for what? Not wanting uh, to immediately bring back an entire squadron of the uh, ISIS Royal Balloon Corps. I mean, for Christ's <laughs> sake, what are you like? What are you talking about? Do something about that. It, it, you know, this is the difficulty of governing. We are there. And by the way, the military also would, if you know, if it were true that they were all like gung ho salivating, this is the the smallest footprint the United States can 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 make the most difference with. Sure, and and it's it's I'll a ex- very I'll accept that it's a very small force. So as far as these things go, 
We're not getting shooting more. We're not. I mean, you're saying it could happen. Of course it could happen. That's mm-hmm. that's one of the prices you pay. And that's that's obvious. And and, and it is a, obviously a real risk. It hasn't happened yet in that sense right there. Mm-hmm. But we have lost people and, you know, it's not in a big, big, big scale. But we have lost people. But to have that force there in doing what it's doing, the, the ISIS is gone as a caliphate in that form. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean it won't come back. It's not defeated. Donald Trump says it's defeated. It's defeated. It's not defeated. There have already been attacks. There have already been attacks. Yeah. And, and you know, this is obviously, you know, more Bader Meinhof than it is the United States Army. There's little cells here and there. Mm-hmm. So you're never going to really get rid of the whole thing. But uh, like controlling large swaths of territory, that couldn't have been done without the United States. The United States was not on the front lines of that. This, if you're going to be, you know, involved in something this is the best way to do it. And I'm not saying this is the right thing to do. I'm just mm-hmm. saying, if you're going to be involved, this is the best way to do it. The Iraqis are, are doing a lot of the fighting. The YPG is doing a lot of the fighting. And, you know, the Americans aren't on the front lines and, you know, they're not, you know, getting in, in, you know, exchanges, uh, gun, gun exchanges from, from, from trench to trench. That's a good thing. It's mm-hmm. effectively an, an embassy. Like yeah. that's the, the extent of personnel, not to diminish any of the hard work that obviously they're putting out there, but like having a group of American personnel in an area that ensure that doesn't get rolled over instantaneously is mm-hmm. functionally what you would have for an embassy. Sure. But they're, like, all, they're also providing a ton of intelligence. Naturally. Yeah. Sorry. But like, yeah, yeah. But that, that is true. Is yeah. there, is there anything that we can say well about like public opinion on U.S. involvement yeah. in Syria. Well, so the reality is, is that this is one of those stories that gets very... Lots of Americans don't know that necessarily the extent to which we're in Syria. Uh-huh. Um, as a result, like you have very strong opinions about Iraq. You have very strong opinions about Afghanistan. Um, you have, like again, like Ukraine has come up repeatedly in the past three weeks. We've only seen the needle move on that like 10 percentage points over the course of going from not really talked about to heavily talked about in the course of a presidential election. Mm-hmm. And so the needle moving component of this is honestly not there. And so this is one of those situations where like, I don't think that there's a lot of voters in America who are Syria voters. I don't think that there's a lot of voters in America who are Kurds voters. This is frankly kind of a values thing. And it kind mm-hmm. of just kind of like it's, but is it going to move the needle for Donald Trump in any way? Because I mean, there's a lot of speculation that he's doing this for a uh, uh, 2020. I fulfilled my promise. And even if there is a, you know, you know, Srebrenica type massacre mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it, the, the Turks are rolling in and carving off a huge swath of, of northeastern Syria. Is it a win for him? Even if yeah. the worst case scenario happens in that region, is it still a win for him? I'll tell you, we don't see foreign policy resonating as much as we used to when it comes to the top issues and polls. Hmm. Realistically, there's two issues that Americans care about right now, and it's healthcare and it's the economy. And you can talk about those issues two different ways. Sunday, they're heavily linked. You have a lot of issues that are kind of uh, a subsidiary of that, whether it's like healthcare is not only, you know, the extent of Medicare, the extent of uh, government assistance, but it's also like how much are bills, how much are premiums, how much of this kind of stuff. And that, if you ask people, is the top issue. Then you get the economy, which is always an issue. And then like down the list, you know, underneath a couple other things, you tend to get foreign policy. But isn't Trump an issue? I oh, mean, yeah. The way that the way that we live in the world like everyone's like clenched up and talking about him, either yeah. pro or con. I mean, I like you mentioned, like we talked about at the very, very beginning of this. This seemed like a thing where there's quite a bit of bipartisan unity, that there were a lot of folks who were just like, mm, I don't know necessarily. If we, like you mentioned that there were very few folks in the Senate, Rand Paul, who was saying like, oh, no, we're, this is great. We should continue to get out. This is an issue where you tend to have like bipartisanship across the board in favor of this kind of support thing. Not so to say why that there's they do something. I mean, they they could totally vote on this shit. They could. They just could. <laughs> they could. They could. 
Shadow Shadow knows. Knows. Why, why, worded letter. A- a- why the greatest deliberative <laughs> body is not acting on this, I will never know. That's beyond me. But I, I mean, cowardice yeah. is perhaps one it's answer. 150, I mean, I mean, it's implicitus no, I mean, dishonesty. When, when Syria came up in public opinion in a real way was in 2013 mm-hmm. when Barack Obama was about 48 hours away from sending bombs mm-hmm. in to enforce his red line. And back then it was 80 to 20 um, against or 75 to 25 against. It was it was overwhelming. Um, and it was part of the reason why that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I suspect that if it got to a point where we're talking about a new big deployment, which is one of the, in my mind, the best things about the Trump presidency, we haven't seen a new big deployment, mm-hmm. in a new big war. Mm-hmm. We've gotten too involved in Yemen. Um, and there's been a lot of civilians killed in uh, America involved activity since he's been president. Uh, but he hasn't done that. But if we came to that right now, I think it would be overwhelmingly uh, hostile. Right? There's yeah. just not appetite. For it's it. despite all of the criticism of the president's quote unquote withdrawal. It's always inertia when it comes to foreign policy moves. I mean, if you asked Americans right now, would you like to extract American troops from Korea? Uh, who are defending the DMZ, you know, you probably have a lot of people who are just like, well, we've been there a long time. We would love to sort it out, but it's probably better to have that. Same thing with Germany. The idea is that there's a lot of like people don't like to rock the boat too much when it comes to this kind of stuff. And that's just the reality of what you're dealing with. That polling isn't always the answer. Like the American people do not know what they want from our policy. I'll say final final point on this is Hmm. that, um, you know, it's, it it was, I mean, it's done haphazardly when it comes to, you know, on the ground stuff in, in, um, in, Syrian, a Kurdish controlled uh, Syria. But it's also supposed to gain us something with Turkey. We don't know what that is, right? We don't have a readout of that call. But Donald Trump is so reckless and so bad at what he does is that he immediately neutralized anything that the Turks could be happy about vis-a-vis America, which they're no, they never are, right? right. The, Tur- the Turks are, 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 are they're an ally, not a friend, right? I don't know who said that, but it's, it's a, they're a NATO ally. They're not a friend of the United States. And so Donald Trump, of course, and everyone knows this now, this is a great one, tweets, as I've stated strongly before, and just to reiterate, reiterate if Turkey does anything that I, in my great and unmatched wisdom, Considered to be off limits, I will totally destroy and obliterate the economy of Turkey. Economy weirdly is capitalized. Way with words. And he says, I've done before. Mm. Um, and then, which <laughs> yeah. I have no idea what that even means. I don't know what that means. Yeah. Atlantic, Atlantic City. Atlantic yeah. City yeah. rose against yeah. him, and you saw what he exactly. did to you exactly. down in Atlantic City. Destroyed that. But then, then, of course, Twitter uh, gets in, in, in trouble for allowing. Um, a hashtag to t- trend in Turkey on Twitter uh, that was like kill Trump. Oh boy. <laughs> yeah, I think it was kill Trump. So he, so you'd think like, you know, n- nationalist Turks would be like, man, I don't mind this Trump guy. Uh, He's allowing us to take on these PKK terrorists. Uh-huh. And then four minutes later, they're like, kill Trump. It's like, this man <laughs> is so f- cack-handed on every possible <laughs> level. It's, it's really astonishing. Yeah, I think what he's referring to is he took Melania to Turkey. They went to the Hermes store and they they fucked up some commas. Yeah, I think yeah. that's what happened there. Fucked up some commas. That's a phrase, you know. So, well, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about impeachment. Um, yeah, sure. And you may have some sensibilities about where the numbers are on this, both with respect to support for impeachment, but also with respect to what the hell the consequence of this whole thing might be before. The additional reporting on the text messages came out. I saw some polling um, that suggested that if, in fact, the president were 
to if impeachment were to go through and it was unsuccessful, the president might, in fact, get some sort of a bounce out of this. Do we have a sensibility now or what's sort of the latest uh, polling tell us about the impeachment situation? Yeah, what's happened with the impeachment situation, basically, is that for the longest time, there was a lot of skepticism of impeachment, not only on the right, but also on the left, Mm -hmm. because the left kind of perceives it as potentially like, uh, tactical move you know like this like there's a reason that Pelosi held off for a while there are consequences to this kind of stuff and what we're seeing is that what impeachment has done over the past two weeks is impeachment has suddenly turned into uh, butterfly like into just the approval of Donald Trump so the idea is that you have seen basically opinion ossify mm-hmm. into that stagnant chart that we've seen for the past three years uh, where you got 40% of the country who really much support him and hence oppose impeachment. And you're starting to see majorities of the country, slim majorities, um, begin to uh, either support impeachment or oppose Donald Trump. Is it still 90 odd percent of Republicans or 89 percent of Republicans? 87. 87 was the last holding. We got a poll Lines yesterday. Holding. Like yeah. it's 10 percent. You're going to get 10 percent. That's yeah. the reality of this. Yeah. And um, so functionally, what this means for the president is that like, it's gone from being a slightly radioactive issue for Democrats to go near to now. Like, okay, you know, Corks off the champagne, let's party. And at a certain point, that's just going to tactically mean for them that this is no longer going to be about Donald Trump. It's going to be about forcing senators to take votes that they then need to answer for in 2020. But I what mean, about the possibility that he they, they do this thing mm-hmm. and he totally beats them charges like Rocky? And does that strengthen him in 2020? And that's, that's a yeah. rap lyric. I assume because you, you used the word but, but Rocky wins. Rocky <laughs> wins. He keeps winning. Jesse. Rocky loses at the end of Rocky. But he wins. But at the end of Rocky, he loses. And you don't, and Rocky watching, you don't get to Rocky yeah. multiples <laughs> because Rocky's a loser. He's a winner. Did, wow. he beat, did he beat the Swedish guy who was pretending to be Russian? I don't know. He did. He did. But he lost yeah. to uh, he lost Mr. to T. Mr. Clubber, T. Clubber Lang. Yeah, he won yeah. the rematch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. see Creed too. I don't there's know. There's at least three latest situation. Yeah, yeah, I don't know who's in that. <laughs> yeah. I just know that Jason Schwartzman's mom is the mom, is the uh, a wife. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Actually, Dolph Lundgren comes back in Creed too. Oh, does he? Yeah, yeah. Wow. like his kid, right? Yeah, his kid is the fighter. Yeah, Apollo's but, kid, and yeah, you want to give a spoiler? Oh, no, no, you got to see it. It came out a year ago. Can we talk about Joker? Are we finished with the impeachment stuff? No. Uh, okay. so, much like Creed 2, the issues are awesome. Because oh, yeah. you know, you know I, what? No one knows. You know, <laughs> that's the bottom line. But from what I understand, right, like this a week we've seen like two or three or four polls about impeachment. Mm-hmm. And there's and we should not be uh, lazy about it. There's the do you support the inquiry, in- inquiry yeah. of so right, we've done right. both of these. Right. Right. Yeah. And and. For this week is the first time we've had, I think, two polls where it's uh, at or around 50 percent where people are like removal, yeah. like Senate, you know, guilty. Get him out of there. You got is that 50 yeah. percent. And also one of the polls, Washington Post, I think, ABC poll uh, compared from July, the support among Republicans for impeachment. And I don't know if it was inquiry or it was removal is up 21 percentage points since July. Yeah. Um, that's a real number. Now, my mentor in polling, Ariana Huffington, once told me to take fewer polls. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, no, at the end of the day, like what you're seeing actually that could be a problem for Democrats who would like to see that is that you're seeing the impeachment polling numbers, the impeachment inquiry numbers, and the impeachment removal numbers start to become the same. And when right. that happens, you're seeing a you're seeing a basically just, you know, part of like polarization where the same people who think that he should be an inquiry should take place, think that he should then be as a result uh, impeached and as a result removed. And so you've kind of lose the gradations that you kind of hope to see uh, for folks who are trying to move this in this direction. 
uh, of trying to get like, oh, well, you have people who are like interested in hearing them out and that kind of thing. And it, rather than the typical kind of hit the bunker, we're going to we're, we're going to the mattresses. Point of inquiry. Sure. And it's OK to answer no. But have you looked into um, the kind of gradations of public opinion about impeachment or related topics um, with Richard Nixon in 1973, 1974? Yeah. So the funny thing about that is that there's very few pollsters who are still doing who are still in the game. You got Gallup, you got a few folks like that. Um, our relationship with Serving Monkey does not extend back to 1974. Um, but yeah, so what you kind of see with that is, that, again, like impeachment is never a certainty until it's a certainty. And yeah. it's and we've 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 passed the point where it is a. Um, a real it's going to be decided in the polls. This is a political question. This like if an investigation turns some stuff up, then an investigation turns some stuff up at the end of the day. This is going to have electoral consequences, probably not for Donald Trump, but for the senators who are going to be forced to make a call. Mm. And though the evidence will not be enough to indict Trump potentially, or it might be, you never know, but like they're going to have to put their name next to that. And then that's going to potentially carry some weight in a lot of important states for Democrats and important states for Republicans at that point. It's like if you are looking at who impeachment reflects upon, you're looking um, again um Maine could go up. I mean, Arizona's already kind of dicey at this point for McSally. So like there's a lot like if you want to ask what the political implications at this point, you can be kind of confident that they're going to have some Senate ramifications because we can be kind of confident that it's going to get to the Senate. Um, does it affect Donald Trump? Way too early to tell. And then also, um, and sorry to uh, belabor it uh, oh, no, with you, but like the his actual um actions vis-a-vis yeah. Ukraine, nobody likes them. Right. No. Yeah. I mean, those. So we ask people, how familiar are you with the Ukraine stuff? And he uh, in a general Ukraine was not very well known about a week ago when it came to this. It popped about 10 points. The people who are aware of it do not like it and are very in favor. They not to say the rightness or wrongness of of an impeachment or if they favor sure. it. They think that it is right to do an inquiry as a result of this. Right. Um, the more that people know about Ukraine and the relationship that Trump has with them, the more likely they are to be uh, quite keen on an inquiry. So I would just say at the end of the day, that is a like that's where this is going. That's what the trend looks like. So if this stays in the news, it stays in the news. Oh my God! It's, it's so bad. No, no, not you. Oh my God! <laughs> no, he smelled a thing. I love the fact that you ended that. Like, God, that's awful. <laughs> no, no, I mean, I'm just looking at it. Yeah. That, 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 no, that looks like poison. I, I opened a bottle. Yeah, yeah. it's a very something. old bottle of something. Yeah, that someone sent us. Yeah, don't mention what it is. There are vegetables inside of no, the whiskey cup. Like, exactly. it's, it's like oh molasses at this point. It's been sitting in in a cabinet in my house. Jesus, that's like what drips out of mummies. At this point, it's just gasoline. Like that's all it is. Thank the listeners. Uh, but I don't know who you are, but that is really fucking disgusting. That, actually, that reminds me of the bottle of moonshine, not bottle jar. Oh, of shit. Moonshine. Right. Did you drink that? Yeah, I, oh shit! Yeah. I absolutely it was drank a lot of it. Delicious. Oh, it was, was that the thing that put me in the hospital? I had like no label on it. Sure. We had no idea what was in it. And this it was sent to us by a stranger. From bootleg yeah. vapes. Yeah. Just I mean, doing this, so please send us poison in the this mail. This is a libertarian podcast. If you get sent without a label, you got to drink. Not a libertarian podcast. No, it's just not the Okay. <laughs> it's a podcast that over, it over indexes for libertarian. Yeah, gotcha. I gotcha. So this and then there's me. Um, <laughs> do we have uh, like uh, if, if Moynihan, if you could like, or uh, Fisher, if you could characterize the percentage of people in their feedback that you solicited uh-huh. for this week who are like drink more 
or drink less? Uh, uh, 50-50, maybe? It's true. Um, I, I read one right when I came in. I think I told you about this. <laughs> I walked in, and one popped up. We get a lot. And um, this one popped up. And it's hard to get to all of them. And, and it just happened to be there. And it said... Um, the faults are because I asked like people give criticisms. You have some yeah. criticisms, yeah. and you know most people don't have them because it's a pretty perfect show. Yeah, it's and, um, <laughs> this person said, you know, uh, sometimes you get a little too drunk. Unbelievable. And Matt pointed out, I was like, hey, maybe that's true. I've, I've gone home, and then Matt pointed out, you're talking about you two. Because yeah. <laughs> yeah. I am Michael Christopher Moynihan with a handle of the drink, and you guys, no, you, no, you drunk a See, couple of times. I drunk a couple times. Yeah. You can't handle your drink, but you don't slur. Oh shit! I, I just remembered something. Oh, oh my god! Oh, no. There was an episode where I asked you to cut a whole bit because I was super wasted. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. you were screaming. I mean, how many yeah. times? Yeah. Did, no, you, did, you, cut, did you cut a bit? I'm sure I did. No, it was like yeah. 20 minutes. I'm just Patreon.com slash No, that's coming, guys. Um, Actually, not a bad idea. Not a bad idea. Yeah. Um, All no, the career-ending stuff on the cutting room floor. At least let's make money off of it. Yeah. yeah. Look, if you that's give, if you give us money, <laughs> we'll take yeah. care of you forever. So like, I've been posting these outtakes on, on Instagram. I will say everyone had an but, opinion on our drinking. So it was it was mostly you know, pointing at Matt, by the way. Yeah. Um because well, he put the question to us. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, I've been posting these outtakes. I think that if on the Patreon, um I've been posting them on Instagram, but just from 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 the TV show. But you know, I will uh, offer up some uh, career ending um yeah. stuff on the cutting room floor. Today I posted something actually that I probably shouldn't have. Me yelling me yelling at somebody that I interviewed after they walked away. Oh, oh. yeah. Uh, I, have I was the, look, pre- have the, look the, the president of um Evergreen yeah. College. Oh, oh. Uh, who I did a little description of it, but I did a piece um, ages ago uh, for the HBO show on, on Evergreen, um, and it was a pretty straight down the middle piece. Talked to everybody mm-hmm. in it, Great and um, I talked to George Bridges, who was the president of Evergreen, and he sat down with us, and he hadn't talked to anybody else. And he he said, if I stayed another day, um, uh, that that you know today I could give you a little bit of time. Say tomorrow I'll give you forty five minutes to an hour or something like that. And so I stayed. We changed the flight, and on crew stayed. And um, he lasted 14 minutes and 25 seconds. Something like that. It was like 15 minutes. Um, and uh, walked out on me mm. uh, because he didn't like the questioning. So I, so I put... Early Joker I, screening, I guess. I, I, yeah, <laughs> I, posted a, I posted just a bit of his empty chair with his microphone on it, his little lav microphone on it, and me yelling <laughs> at them saying, I know what you're doing. Like, you're like, oh, we have a... We have an, another engagement, uh, you know, down at the Waffle House or something. I don't know. <laughs> you actually had a really good line. You said, I've had a lot of interviews. These weren't patty cake questions. That's yeah, why, no, yeah, that's why he left. Yeah. yeah. So so I want to the Patreon. Um, uh, we've been talking about some of this stuff. The would be. The would be Patreon. But, um, Might be a different brand. It's not. Oh, yeah, sure. it's, Go to Substack. I'm having a great time there. <laughs> it's, is that a different kind of Patreon thing? Yeah. I'll t- uh, right, we'll take it a bit offline. Yeah. But, you know, it, um, we, we, we're going to put up some stuff. That um, is different. And I actually suggested, tell me if you like this. And when I say that, you flood the inbox and I don't get to, you know, know when like my grandmother's died because I'm responding to you uh, <laughs> talking about like, why did you say this? And you're not a real libertarian or whatever. Actually, nobody says that. Nobody talks no in those cares. terms. No nobody one cares. Gives a no one cares. Um, I'm going to read a random one, though. Yeah, please. Just because I thought it'd be nice because we yeah. got a lot. And um, this is a totally and random thank one. thank you for them. Thank you for them. Yeah. They've been great. And keep um, coming. Oh, and particularly, I'll find the guy's name too. The guy who um, sent me thirty-four dollars in Bitcoin. You're the fucking best dude. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. And, and, and by the way, this guy is so great. Um, and I think he's been a listener for a long time. Because um, I recognize, I think I recognize his name. But he said uh, when when he wrote back, and I said that I'd received it. He said, "I'm sorry, it wasn't a lot." 
And I'm like, man, no, <laughs> you shouldn't give me anything. That, that's really nice of you. But the, that, that's how nice we have incredibly, incredibly yeah. nice listeners. But there are a lot of political points that people make. People take issue with certain things. Mm-hmm. Um, but this one I thought was pretty interesting. This is somebody named Maggie Selner, and that's at Maggie Selner, and she has a um, uh, a shamrock uh, right there on, on her. See that? Oh, yeah. Um, so maybe I picked it because of that, but you can this is a, you can go full Irish. So I will, <laughs> Michael, you <laughs> fucking bastard! <laughs> I'm from Northern Ireland, from Belfast. Uh, uh, this is Maggie Stellner who says, "I'm an avid listener of the Fifth Column. Love you guys, and wanted to provide a bit of listener feedback per your request in the last episode. I started listening about six months ago. Well, I do feel I know your respective opinions, etc." I'd love to learn more about you just as people, mm. Camille. Yeah. You think Camille? Um, Baby, I'm like, a Scorpio. Like, <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I don't like long walks on the beaches. Hey, dude, you're, but I don't mind beaches that's long. Oh, my you God. You know what I'm saying? Thank God we don't do that terrible thing with the cameras in here. He's, he's lowering right now. He's a method actor. Yeah. Um, so, and, then, and then she says... Um, like your backgrounds and what event experience in each of your lives set the foundation for your beliefs today. Well, well rendered email too. Uh, in what authors, books, et cetera, have had greater impacts on your or political overall belief systems. I'd love it if you dedicated a few episodes to a deep dive into how you became friends, mm. et cetera. Mm. Just general get to know us episodes. I love listening to your ramblings. Exactly right. On the podcast and keep up the great work. Thank you, Maggie Selner. Uh, appreciate that. And I, you know what? I think that this is one of the um, Patreon special episodes yeah. that we talk about. Cause I, and I, when I read that, I was like, how the fuck do I know Camille? Cause I met you in DC. Yeah. And you, I know from, from work. Uh-huh. And, um, and I think that there's probably some funny stuff in there because, um, when I think back the early days of knowing you in DC, I'm thinking mm-hmm. of some, some pretty absurd things. Yeah. So thank you, Maggie. <laughs> and I think that we'll uh, take you up on that, but I'll tell you what, we get a lot of uh, comments like that mm-hmm. about, they liked, um, beyond the politics stuff, um, mm-hmm. pe- uh, us talking nonsense. I can't yes. wait to do an extended conversation about the art of the deal and how it helped to form me yeah. as a person. Yeah, you. you that, yeah, that's it's right. just very important that to tattered me. Tattered copy Even stuff more in your than, back than gifted hands. No, yeah. not yeah. more than gifted hands. Yeah. It's the Magic. most important book I've ever read. <laughs> Um, so we mentioned Joker several times, but I think I am actually the only person who's seen yeah. this phenomenal, phenomenal film. I, I You're really, being serious, right? It's, it's really, really good. Like, okay. I, I mean, Shades of Taxi Driver for sure. Mm. Um, and I mean, as like a comic book film, you, you sort of forget that. There, there's a moment at which like all of the, the, the Dark Knight lore sort of comes back into play. Um, but I thought they did a really masterful job um, and Joaquin Phoenix was absolutely incredible. And it also got me thinking about all of the the really high quality performances of Joker in cinema. Uh, Heath Ledger, very famously in Dark Knight, was just a remarkable Joker. And I don't know who was better, whether Heath Ledger um, or Joaquin Phoenix was better. Or Cesar but even, Romero. Even Jared Cesar Romero. Cesar Romero is the best. Even, yeah. but even, like when you haven't even brought up Jack that. Nicholson in a conversation about being good at this, acting. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. But even, even Jared Leto's like, um, Joker in uh, Suicide Squad was like sort of dark and interesting. Your friend um, Jared Leto? Yeah. Well, I, I just met him the other day. Yeah. We're not we're not friends. I met him the other day. No. Because Hollywood, that's Hollywood, you know, Hollywood kind of did you touch his abs? circles are moving. I follow him now. Touch like his I'm abs. Not... No, he touched my abs. Oh! Yeah. He, touched, he asked, Kenny, yeah. and I said, of course. Yeah. 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 I never turned down. Never turned down a, well. Anyways. Yes, Joker. I thought it was yeah. a good movie. I really liked it, and I think other people should go see it. And if you read a review that was very 
poisonous and wrong about this film and littered with uh, spoilers, I'm sorry for you. That's a, a New Yorker review. It. You should. I mean, isn't it strange where the New Yorker, which for me is like synonymous with who is going to write the best review of a movie has been New Yorker my entire life, my entire mm. life. Right. Like Anthony Lane, I've always loved and other people might have other opinions about it, but he's great. Right. And Pauline Kale, like is the like the founder of the form of the review. That is the worst review I've ever read. In fact, I've read is a strong word. I, I read like three paragraphs <laughs> of the Joker review in The New Yorker. And I I was thinking this must be not not even The Onion, but like Babylon B. What, what was because because I, I read it, too. And I think it was uh, possibly the worst thing I've ever well, read. The major thing is that they had spoilers uh, in, with no spoiler alert. Uh, what was the premise? The the Joker is uh, racially insensitive and it, it fails to be even courageous on race and it whitewashes bad things. And basically it's the Central Park Five meets Bernard Getz um, meets something else and then right. you're off to the races. Because there there are representations of those infamous New York City events in this film, kind of, sort of. There There isn't really a representation of the Central Park Five attack. It's the opening moments of the film, and I don't think I'm spoiling anything here, but I'm telling you right now that I'm going to say something that happens, where Joker is uh, assaulted. He's not quite Joker yet, but he's assaulted while working by a group of young boys who are the minorities and they're not black. So again, I don't know why someone would imagine that this is the Central Park Five, um, but this is a, an important moment where this this guy who is already down on his luck and disadvantaged is humiliated and beaten in the street. And this helps to sort of set the tone for the abuse that's about to take place. But I mean, I don't know that you're supposed to pay any attention to the race of these characters. And I don't know what the lesson is supposed to be for filmmakers here. I think the the this pathetically bad review says much more about the reviewer's obsession with race than it does about the film's treatment of the race issue. Because I just don't think that the film has an opinion on race issues. It's not fucking about that, which amazingly, it's possible for a film to be about something other than our current era of woke politics. Um, although there is a, a moment in the in the chaos at the end where one of Joker's uh, fans, and he does have some, is running through the streets with a resist sign. And I don't know, maybe that's a comment on our on our present day politics, but I'm not entirely sure. And there's no reason to presume that it is. So oftentimes movies just mean what the hell they mean to you. And there isn't a great deal more to it than that. And this particular film I thought was good. It was well worth watching. It was worth watching at 1150 at night when I should have been um, at home sleeping. Is it resonant with our times with our, uh, with our incel times? <laughs> yeah. What is those incel stuff? Is that a newspaper? The incel times? <laughs> oh my God. Yes. What was their review of yeah. the Joker movie? Well, I think people are particularly concerned about the incels because of a, there was one uh, young man in Toronto who mm -hmm. committed like a, a mass murder and he was an incel and an involuntary celibate is what the, what it stands for. Uh, and, the uh, the Aurora shooter, um, according to some witnesses, came in and said, "I'm the Joker." Uh, before he, you know, committed his own mass murder, mm -hmm. and uh, he apparently was kind of an incel before there was a word for it. You know, mm -hmm. very very online. You know, you know, loner women issues. So there was a lot of a ton of takes uh, pre Joker release that uh, there would be some kind of violence uh, at these screenings, and that you know, incels in particular were worth keeping an eye on.
And the film doesn't ever romanticize like his awfulness. Mm -hmm. Like it's just, it's a character study. I mean, the one thing you can say from looking at these reviews without actually having seen it is um, there was a BBC headline. I was just trying to find it. I couldn't. Um, it was something about the violence in the film. And the, the, the headline said something like, was it not was it necessary? But, you know, questioning the purpose of it. And it goes back to what we discussed um, or what I talked about a couple episodes ago about this, this, this voguish thing amongst film reviewers to get upset that the filmmaker isn't making the film that you want them to make. And that's always the thing. Like when I used to review books, it was, or edit people that were doing it. I said, never, never review a book and say, it wasn't the one that I wanted to read, review the book for what it is. And there's a lot of this with the Joker thing is that why is it not addressing this pet political issue that I have. If it seems like it might be sort of redolent of the Central Park Five, you should make a, a, a sort of 20-minute digression there about the great injustice in New York City in the, in, in the late 1980s, is that if we cannot separate ourselves from this stuff, and it's Todd Phillips, right? Is that who did it, yeah, right? Yeah. And by the way, Todd Phillips' best movie was his first movie when he was a student. He made the Gigi Allen documentary, mm -hmm. Hated. Uh, yeah, crazy, right? So the first, that Gigi Allen documentary he did when he was a student at NYU, which is insane. And by the way, if you're squeamish um, and you think the Joker's going to make you squeamish, oh. do not watch the Gigi Allen documentary because it is disgusting. Yeah, don't, similar, even, don't even Google Gigi Allen. Similar yeah. to Taylor Hackford's uh, first uh, movie was a student movie about Charles Bukowski at USC. I want to come out and, and like defend briefly the integrity of film critics um basically i think that they defend them i just don't defend bad ones i think that they're screwed i think that rotten tomatoes has turned film criticism which i think is a genuine like craft like that that is a for it is a form it is a medium with which you can express things i think that it has turned that into an election and i think that that has screwed them because they're they have to vote in public about whether a movie is bad or good and i think that that makes it less an opportunity for them to weigh in and like pull apart the strands of a movie and like weigh in like, mm, this is interesting. This gets at this idea that I've been thinking about, which I think is a genuine form of criticism and kind of forces them to either go like thumbs up or thumbs down. And as a result, you get a percentage. And as a result, the movie gets to advertise or do better or do worse and that kind of thing. And I think that like, they didn't ask for Rotten Tomatoes to exist to kind of inject them into the, like as a person who works with numbers. I think that oftentimes people use them way too much and Rotten Tomatoes and like any kind of online film rating stuff. I tend to be super <laughs> skeptical of personally because like everybody's got a different everybody's coming to a movie review with different baggage. Some people want to know if they want to see it. The New Yorker might want to like see how it folds into the fabric of our society today. And that doesn't necessarily need to manifest in a in a yes or no because they reduce it to a binary. But then. Don't you see some value in a 30 percentage point spread or a 40 or a 50 as we saw with Dave Chappelle with the, the, yeah, yeah. the comic no, thing? I, like, it tells us something. It right? tells us something. But I just think that like it's it's the same thing that you like when it, social media will always kind of bring out some of the worst in news publications, I think, because they want those likes and they want those shares and that kind of thing. And I think that the effect that you see with Rotten Tomatoes and IMDb and these aggregators of things came in very genuine of, we want to tell you if a movie is good or bad, but it's not the like, reviewers aren't reviewing movies as to good or bad. They're often trying to do totally different things. I will say this. I, I don't, I'm not saying you're wrong about this totally. at all, but um, Peter Travers existed before. Oh, Rotten no, you're 100% right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so did thumbs up. 
thumbs down. So did the guy four in the stars. Cab saying, See it. Like yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. Don't well, get me wrong. Cinema score yeah. too, which is also like interviewing yeah. audience members after movies, which I actually always, you know, it's weird. I remember listening to this as like a 12 year old kid yeah. in LA. Like we, you know, we interviewed people after the movie and they gave it an A minus. So I was like, okay, yeah, maybe yeah, that's yeah. actually good. And I don't yeah. have to listen to Kenneth Turan, the LA times. But to, to, <laughs> to, to your point about, you know, film criticism and, and look, it's, it's an art form and there's people uh, whom, I've followed their stuff and I really love and I, I and I look forward to their opinions on yeah. things. But it has uh, come to a point that that you used to have to vault up in the world to become a film critic. You'd yes. be you'd be Joyce Colhaywick in Boston. You remember Joyce Colhaywick? No. Uh, uh, that doesn't uh, sound like the way a Bostonian would like pronounce that name. I, she was she didn't talk like that. So and I'm and, you know I'm, I can't have this many episodes in a row with a Boston accent. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't. Uh, but uh, she would like you know and you would you would go. From like you know the local TV station, or you'd write in the local paper, etc. There were and minor that, leagues. There were minor leagues, right? And these people just immediately graduate into into you know writing with quills and saying, "Here's yeah. my pronouncement on this movie." And it's funny how I mean I don't think these people, most of them, most of the stuff that I've read recently, is specifically about the Joker, don't seem to know anything about film or film history. And it's funny to see because if you go back. And think who in the past was looking for little political messages within films uh-huh. and trying to sniff them out, right? It's funny because um, I was watching the Philadelphia story, which is yeah, which is a great I just movie. watched that too. It's a fantastic movie, and I there was a line in it, and I said, "Oh, the the writer of this is 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 a communist." And, and I don't mean that like yeah. in a pejorative, like literally there was the party was quite big, big in Hollywood. And the thing about the Hollywood 10 is that it was a, a grave injustice. But most of these people were actually party members and some of them Stalinists like Dalton Trumbo. And I looked and it was one of the writers was Donald, Donald Ogden Stewart, whose son is David Ogden Stewart, who is a great actor. And I was like, oh, he's one of the guys because there's this there's this great little bit about the rich people because, you know, it's the Philadelphia main line. Yeah, it's yeah. the Philadelphia main line. And it's like people talking in that Catherine Hepburn way. And Stewart, of course, was party affiliated. Yeah. And this is what people used to do with films is sniffing out these little, you know, heterodoxies ideologically. And now we're doing it in a slightly different way. Right. I mean, a film comes out and you're overvaluing it for having the right politics, right? I mean, I don't know if Moonlight is a great film, but everybody I know said, you have to see it, you have to see it, you have to see it, you have to see it. And then some other people that I know that saw it and aren't particularly political was like, it was all right. You know, but it's like, no, no, but it, it, thematically it's great. It's because it's representation on screen. It's like, okay, that's important. But in in the process, I don't want to value something for representation. I can say, well, that was good that you tried it and maybe it failed. But when I see people reviewing films these days because there's no minor leagues and because, I mean, there was a minor leagues and, and somehow Richard Brody is playing in the majors and God knows how that happened. But, you know, these young, it's a lot of young people and it's like, oh, like, oh, the new um, Jurassic Park is is like homophobic. I'm like, wait, what? How is <laughs> how is this a, an, an article? Why? Are, and it's like hate clicks and clickbait and the rest of it. But it seems to me completely destroying, um, not destroying, but but maybe tainting film criticism because 20 to 30 percent of the film reviews that I see these days have something about identity in them. And I'm yeah. like. Even if it's not relevant to to the story, I mean, if you're seeing well, if your hammer, everything looks like a nail. Yeah, well, exactly, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and 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 it's it just seems so more, more pronounced today. It's like it's not as if you're like I'm not your Negro and talking about race. It's like, well, yeah, obviously, mm-hmm. the movie about Baldwin, right? Mm-hmm. And like that's that's kind of yeah, well, kind of. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the end about Black Lives Matter, mm-hmm. but 
you know, it seems relevant at certain times, but it just seems everywhere now. When I saw the Joker, it was like, what is the purpose of this violence? It's like, it's none of your, it's none of your business. Honestly, <laughs> it's the filmmaker's business. It's the guy who wrote the movie. Did you like it or did you not like it? Don't try to get inside of his head and say, what was his motivation for doing this? And I can try to figure it out. And I think I've found the, the, the actual answer here. And then I'm going to indict him on it. That's an utterly insane way of, of, of looking at, at, at art. It's like with Starship Troopers, like back in the like people mm. were just like, oh, this is a Nazi movie. When in actuality, Did it was like, really? it was a brilliant oh, yeah. satirization still, of fascism. And like, yeah, right. exactly. Yeah. People thought it was like, a people, movie. Yeah. And I think it Absolutely. was. They thought Ver, Verhoeven was making, like, but we're realistically, the triumph of the world was exactly what they were pulling from. Sorry, go on. No, this is this is kind of the second time. Was it last week when we were talking about This films? is why I brought it up again. Yeah. 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 I, I still... It's it, it, matters, it matters to me what the filmmaker was after. Perhaps I read something different there. I see something different when I look at it. Um, and maybe they didn't do a great job of selling the metaphor that they were after with this film. But it matters to me if mm. Tolkien wants to sell me something in his films. Sure. You know, yeah, I yeah, think yeah. I might have snuffed out a little bit of political messaging in the wandering earth. And, and I'll tell you yeah. about that. <laughs> <laughs> a, a tiny bit. Yeah. It seems like pro China. Um, <laughs> but, but no, Camille, I think you're right about that. But what my problem is, is when you're imputing political motives, sure. reflect your own that you can't actually divine from the available information. Yes. And that drives me a bit, a bit bananas. And I get it also in writing. Um, I was reading this morning, actually this um, collect, this collect the complete, Orwell essays, mm. and I was—I can't remember who the who wrote the um, introduction, but I'll—I'll I'll, I'll link to it or something. But there was a, there was a bit about this debate that still happens to this day to what the actual message of 1984 is. Like, what is he actually getting at? Is it a pro-socialist book that is opposed? Um, is it you know because there's a character that's supposed to be Trotsky in this book, right? Right. And then there's like, is it an anti-Stalinist book? Is it is it an anti-communist book? And there was like going through this, and critics have gone over this stuff and sifted through his papers and the rest of it. And we can never know. And there's something enjoyable about that. Yeah. But we do understand that there was a political premise there. We're not we're not forcing one upon the book. Yeah. It wasn't a book about a town in which people, you know, just, you know, there's TVs on everywhere or something, you know. So uh, there is this thing where you take these elements of real criticism and real literary criticism or film criticism and you jam it onto everything. Have you ever seen Room 237? Yeah, I don't know about the oh, shining. You're gonna love it. Yeah, because yeah. it's literally like eight critics come together and tell tell the watcher what the shining means, and they're oh, all vastly different. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and like, that's yeah, cool. Because like Kubrick obviously was hyper enigmatic for a lot of really yeah, cool reasons. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. like it's the the it's the research and and criticism around the shining is a great example of just like this is a Rorschach test, and what you say says way more about you than you say about the yeah. shining. Yeah, I, and, I don't yeah. remember the, there's some European filmmaker, um, the 60s, 70s, in the kind of Fellini Bergman era, who had like a like a white horse like running in the background and just did that to see what critics would say to the message. <laughs> and I was like I, it's, it's, it's discussing a larger point about what's happened in post-war Europe. Sort of a white steed running away from freedom and he's like no I'm just doing that just to fuck with you. You know it's like this and there should be more of that. There should be more of that. But you know I mean it's we see this a lot in art and um, we, you know in the past we talked about about some paintings that were, were protested here. Purchasing paintings is always a bizarre thing to me. But it, 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 all, all of that relies upon the viewer mm -hmm. telling the, the painter 
um, in this one particular one, which I think you probably remember, mm. what she intended. Uh, and she yeah. says, well, no, the Emmett Till painting is what yeah, we're talking about. Yeah. Um, well, no, that's, this is not that at all. She was co-opting black suffering. And then they, they stood in front of it in this very kind of Stalinist way mm-hmm. until it was either removed or covered up or something. They didn't win that time. Though. They didn't win that time. They, they, did win in, they went in other places with the same painting, though, with mm-hmm. the same artist. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's part of, I think, of a, of a, of a growing trend of the politicization of everything. And it really distresses me that I, I just, I honestly, I do this for a living. I mean, politics and, and this, I don't think if I went to the Joker, I would think anything political, the whole movie. Maybe not. Maybe I would. I don't know. One quick point is on the politicization of everything is that it's not exclusively coming from the left. Like there's a, there's a ton of identity obsessed stuff on the left. But, Undoubtedly. Yeah. But you know, people like Jordan Peterson and Ben Shapiro had absolute conniptions over the movie Frozen as anti-male propaganda. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not kidding. Both of them wrote articles. Uh, well, have long Look, podcasts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, of course. But there's a big, 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 huge difference. Nobody takes Ben Shapiro seriously. <laughs> Ben Shapiro does not publish. And I'm talking about in like the intellectual classes. Sure. He does not publish in the New Yorker. Mm-hmm. There's not a right wing version of the New Yorker of that idiotic Brody review of the Joker because these people are fucking jokers. And the mm-hmm. way they talk about movies. Look, there used to be a guy named James Bowman who was a film reviewer and a conservative guy. And they hired him from the New York Sun when the Sun uh, existed. And every fucking movie review was like him seeing it through a conservative prism. He's like, you know what's really conservative oh. about this movie? Like, who cares? <laughs> yeah. Dude, like, get, get a life. Honestly, can you stop it with everything? And conservatives do that for sure. And they, they do it in spades. And it's, I, I think, in some ways, even more annoying, but it's more culturally influential. And so many people are trying to replicate it. You know, every my publication, every publication is mm-hmm. getting some sort of joker take that is through the incel lens or through the sort of, you know, race. It's always just foisting this politics on it. And that one strikes me as different because it's more more prominent in the culture. Man, I just fucking killed Sounds him. Sounds good. Wow. <laughs> what are no, you shaking your head for? I'm wondering if we should nope, do anything else. We should get the hell out of here. I think we should good. get out of here. Right? We, I, think, I think we did a tr- tremendous amount of some idiot wrote this already. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> you want to plug your newsletter? Yeah, hell please. Yeah. yeah, do that. Yeah, so you can find I work with Anthony, so uh, please continue to check out Business Insiders political coverage and all the all the cool data stuff that we're doing there. But uh, when I left 538, I uh, started out on my own to start a newsletter. Uh, I did it through Substack, that thing I recommended you guys earlier, but it's called Numlock. It is basically a daily morning newsletter. Mm-hmm. Nice, upbeat, good times. Uh, I kind of realized when I was doing uh, 538 that every single story in paragraph 9 has the actual number that they're talking about in the story. Like they called the mayor and they found out the school nugget and they buried it in paragraph nine because that's where mm-hmm. journalists leave actual facts and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so point of the newsletter is it bubbles that stuff up. It's a good way to start your morning. Great times. You can find that at numlock, uh, dot news. Uh, yeah, news. Yeah, oh. no, that's a cool URL these days that. now. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so numlock is in the key on your computer that forces you to do numbers and it's pointless. Yeah. So do you have to go home and write this tonight? I wrote about half of it. I'm going to write it later. I'm kind of a night owl anyway, but yeah. Okay. Can, can I bother you with one thing that, yeah, totally. that, that interests me? Um, what is the worst example of data journalism you've seen in the last oh, couple of years? Oh, like I've, I've seen numerous pieces where people like decide to add up the number of X and it's just, it's totally pointless. This is not enriching anyone's life or making us act, giving us actually a better, more in-depth understanding of this topic. Yeah. About. Give me, an, do you are have you talking an example? About a specific one? What's your, what's your one? I can tell I, you. Got, I, got I don't know. There, there, there are plenty that I could just sort of pull out of the hat, <laughs> yeah. but I'm so wondering the, if there's anything you've seen that offends yeah. The worst one that I have done was I've probably done many once. Um, but um, <laughs> no, I think that uh, the sins that I tend to see the most of are a lot of like visualization ones, like just kind of really going back to 
um, hard ways to kind of actually convey information across to people, like a, a shitload of pie charts, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of just like very basic quickie Excel stuff. And uh, I don't know. I think that in general, I have covered a lot of stuff in the entertainment space and the entertainment space is nice because uh, there's nobody, there's no website doing it like politics, sports. Those are all have established things. Entertainment space is just like kid with too much time on his hands. Watch all the episodes of friends and makes a thing. And like, yeah. so I tend to watch some good stuff, but like, yeah, there's some pretty gnarly ones out there. There's some pretty gnarly ones where they add uh, like, like uh, inflation adjustment always makes for terrible stories. A lot of times, whenever you see like a story mm. about, like the top movies of the year that doesn't factor in any inflation remotely. I think that the most, the most consistent thing that you see is anytime that we talk about movie records, which is just like I- infinity war is a rather uh, end game is the highest grossing film of all time. Cause no, it's not yeah, <laughs> like, it's dollars are dollars are worth different things now yeah. than they were at different points. Yeah. But yeah, uh, I would just say that that is like the consistent thing that gets on my nerves uh, is like pie charts and box office coverage. Pie <laughs> charts are evil. Yeah. Cool. I think that's a good note to go out on. Pie charts are evil. Pie yeah. charts are evil. That's where we're ending. Pie charts are fucking bad. That's They're where racist. we sell this. Why are you defending pie charts, Michael Moynihan? I can't. I Do you just, also hate, hate dreadlocks? Uh, My grandmother hates dreadlocks. Oh, here's a tweet. Uh, My mom too. Did you guys just hear? Uh, <laughs> at pie charts just tweeted in favor of <laughs> yeah. the Chinese government when it comes yeah, to the bastards. <laughs> I, I know. I, I just looked at Blizzard's uh, Twitter account. Oh, that's a thing. They are it? getting fucking torched it's beautiful yeah. it's bad you know yeah. what gamers really? are all over like, again, yeah. like because it's a very international community this is i don't know i was really encouraged by a lot of because that's a much younger scene but it's a much more international yeah. scene than us that's, well that's then, then the heard. nba in a lot <laughs> of different ways yeah. you. And, and someday Stop. um because you seem to know this world someday you can sit me down for a, f- a few minutes and explain what gamer gate is to me i still <laughs> like, no, 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 no. No. i have twitter no, mentions yeah. i'm not saying that word are you i don't know i literally don't know what it is i don't know it's like it's it's just people that play yeah, games and are like drugs. An online yeah. last thing, um, You don't have to explain it now, but yeah. just tell me when we have a drink after. But the last thing, he really does look like Winnie the Pooh. Bye. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse. The Fifth Column.